The Vigilus Campaign, Part 2. The War of Nightmares. The bitter tale of invasion, desperation and heroism that unfolded during the War of Beasts was only the beginning. There was an even greater threat to Vigilus, the Neckmund Gauntlet, and the Imperium Nihilus as a whole. That of the War Master Abaddon, and the dread legions of chaos that marched at his command. The Cicatrix Maledictum forever changed the Imperium of Man. As it tore open across the length of the galaxy, a thousand new wars began. In the Segmentum Obscurus, the populous but arid planet of Vigilus became a point of crucial strategic importance. That world lay at the northern end of the Neckmund Gauntlet, one of the few stable corridors across the Great Rift. Through its haunted reaches, spacecraft could cross from the heartlands of the Imperium Sanctus to the desperate and anarchic Imperium Nihilus, back again with at least some chance of arriving at their destination intact. Yet as the Great Rift opened, it disgorged an invasion fleet of orcs that fell upon Vigilus like an avalanche. The sudden influx of greenskins triggered an insurrection of gene-stealer cultists that had long dwelt beneath the planet's surface. Even before the Noctis Eterna cut Vigilus off from the Astronomicon, its every continent was riven by war. The name of the Vigilus system was soon on the lips of the High Lords of Terror themselves. The Lord Commander of the Imperium, the Primarch Rebute Gilliman, swore that the planet would endure, and sent, for some reason, Chapter Master of the Ultramarines, Marnius Calgar, to ensure his word was true. Yet the most awful danger to the planet only revealed itself when warriors of the Black Legion were sighted amongst the planet's spires. They were the harbingers of Abaddon the Despoiler himself, who approached the beleaguered planet at the head of a crusading force, mighty enough to conquer the entire system if necessary. Here, on this most vital linchpin, the forces of the Imperium were to be tested as never before. Doom from the Skies The defenders of Vigilus had fought long to hold back the Xenos invaders, with the Orc assault blunted and the gene-stealer cult largely contained, they had begun to think that they had endured the worst. Only when the skies lit with the engine flares of a vast chaos fleet did they realize the magnitude of their error. The doom of Vigilus was closing in from a dozen directions at once. From the wilderness came the greenskin hordes, whooping and hollering whenever the Imperium launched an assault on their scrap cities. As not for nothing is it said that to counterattack the orcs in strength is to kick a dagger wasp's nest. Too stubborn to give up despite the decisive strikes of the Adeptus Astartes, the greenskins charged headlong into the cities wherever they could force a hole in the defences, or hurried for sights on the horizon where smoke trailed and explosions boomed. Though close to half of the orc invaders that had originally invaded Vigilus had been slain in violence or fire, many more had sprung from the aftermath. The leader of the orc war effort, a hulking brute known as Cruel Dacker, the Speed Lord Supreme, kept on the move throughout the War of Beasts, knowing that he was a primary target, but that the Imperials did not have the resources to hunt him down while the Hive Sprawls were under attack. 
his hit and run assaults took their toll on everything from trench lines to armoured mega-convoys. After the siege of Mertwold, many Imperial knights swore a vow of duty to claim his head, but at the onset of the Chaos invasion, none had claimed success. From below each hive sprawl came a seemingly endless infestation of gene-steel occultists from the cult of the pauper princes, boiling up from their hidden warrens to claim city streets, dockyards and water purification plants. In scores of hab zones and city plazas, they were put down by the local Astra Militarum forces and their space marine allies, but there always seemed to be more. The false continent of Dirkton was abandoned to the insurrectionists, with pure strain gene stealers running openly in the streets. War raged for the reservoirs of Otek Hivesprawl, known as the Hollows, while the space elevator that supplied Mega Borealis with water mined from frozen asteroids was seized by the higher echelons of the cult. Though less aggressive than the orcs, the cults fought with such cunning and careful forethought. They even overcame the Skatari, an Adeptus kill team sent to root them out. These two Xenos races were portrayed as savage and brutish by the Imperial propaganda machine. But in truth, both showed a hidden cunning that stymied Imperial efforts to rid Vigilus of their presence. Claims that victory in the War of Beasts was close at hand rang out every new dawn, but some began to detect a note of desperation under the strident calls to action. These bestial foes were not the only scourge upon the citizens of Vigilus. Drakari raided from the glacier mines of the frozen south, while their Aldari cousins sought vengeance against the upper echelons of Hyperion society. From within the ranks of the common people, the seeds of chaos worship grew to infect healthy minds, and plagues spread fast across Dontoria, even the stars themselves seemed to bleed as the Cisastrix Melodictum yawned in the night sky, a livid purple wound that appeared ready to swallow the planet entire. The worst of all threats became clear only when it was almost too late to stop it, that being the approach of the heretic Astartes. Via the report of a single survivor from a space marine strike force sent to the neighbouring planet of Namandgast, word had reached Marnius Kalgar, that the armies of Abaddon the Despoiler were inbound, poised to tear Vigilus apart once and for all. With the Imperial Prohibition forbidding the citizens from looking at the night sky in case the Cicitrix Maledictum drove them insane, the vanguard of the Chaos Space Marines found it easy enough to covertly seize the upper reaches of the hive spires that pushed through the smog clouds. That seems ridiculous, but that appears to be what happened. Led by Harkon Worldclaimer, known to his raptor hosts as the Herald of the Apocalypse, this secret invasion had already conquered the high spires of Vigilus's cities by the time the Senate heard of it. On the same day that these tidings were brought to Calgar, Harkon Worldclaimer gave voice to a singular message. His words relayed from a thousand raptor masks and hijacked Vox gargoyles. The planet belonged to Abaddon and the Warmaster would soon be there to claim it. Manius Kalgar listened well to the Herald's threats, for every word was a spike of spite driven into his heart. The Lord Macrag had been acting as a strategic nexus for the Vigilus Senate at the time, but as he listened, his expression hardened to that of a pugilist, more than ready to fight. Battle 
in the void. It was Harkon Worldclaimer's gloating call that kicked the planet into a new phase of war. The Vigilous Senate vowed to intervene before the situation turned critical. And the motion was passed for a naval expedition to head the incoming doom off before it could reach the planet itself. Soon, a new theatre of war opened in the void. All eyes looked to Kalgar as he gave a series of curt commands that saw his aerial assets redeployed, not to strafe ground targets, but to begin a new war above the clouds. Shaken by the news that the legendary War Master of Chaos was inbound, but resolving to prove equal to the task, Manius issued a summons that saw the deadliest ships in the Imperial fleet gather above the sky docks of Saint's Haven. His intent was to stymie the bulk of the Chaos invasion before it hit home, or to die in the attempt. The Herald of the Apocalypse repeated his claim over and over, using his doleful message as a weapon to slash at the remaining hope and sanity of the vigilous citizenry. Manius Kalgar swiftly put into place an array of contingencies, tasking his pilots and close assault squads with the immediate engagement of any Chaos Space Marine or Demon Engine that dared broadcast the fell message. It was not difficult to find them, for, having hidden for weeks, the Black Legion was no longer prioritising stealth, but instead the infliction of fear. They too ached for the kill. To feel their blades puncture the ceramite battle plate of their hated foes and sink into the flesh beneath. It was a wish that was soon granted. As his airborne warriors engaged the enemy in the pollution-choked skies of Hyperia Hivesprawl, Kalgar and his honor guard made to leave the planet, leaving its defences in the capable hands of Pedro Cantor of the Crimson Fists. From the bridge of his flagship, the Laurels of Victory, the Lord McCrag headed towards the coordinates given by Librarian Maltis, the sole survivor from the Narmengast strike force. Out the Ultramarines' fleet sailed, past the spinning wreckage of the Imperial Cordon, smashed to pieces by the Orc Assault, past Neo Vellum and Omis Prion, and into the bleak and unwelcoming void towards Narmengast. After less than a week's travel, the Orspex horizon was haunted by disturbing anomalies. Chief amongst them, an ancient vessel with a dark and bloody history. Kalgar's gravest suspicions were all but confirmed. Breaking the free seals of his craft's sanctum pejorium and consulting its forbidden data by the light of a blessed candle, Kalgar checked the energy signature his steersman had given him with the most ancient data at his disposal. Sure enough, the craft at the head of the invasion fleet was none other than the vengeful spirit, the flagship of the arch-traitor and orchestrator of the heresy, Primarch Horus himself. Its evil silhouette was distinguishable against the roiling tides of the Great Rift, and it filled those who had heard of it with intense foreboding. Kalgar ordered his fleet to form a double cordon, creating a layered broadside defence to intercept the Black Legion armada. The Imperial ships possessed no arcane tricks, no secret weapons from the prehistory of the Imperium or the depths of the Eye of Terror. What they had, instead, was a colossal amount of firepower, and the Lord McCrag intended to use it to the full. Together with his arch-commodore herdsman, he devised a dozen firing solutions and contingencies, launching hundreds of torpedoes into the void to ensure that should any ship from the Chaos Fleet break away from the Imperial crosshairs, 
they would be met with a firestorm that would cripple them in short order. Minutes slid by, then hours. The Chaos fleet hove in closer and closer, not changing their heading so much as one degree. This was a statement in itself, the implication being that the Imperial fleet represented no jeopardy at all. Although they were still out of strike range, Avedon and his lieutenants drove on at full speed as if the entire might arrayed ahead of them was nothing more than a tissue of cobwebs. Kalgar's frown of consternation deepened to a scowl. He knew Abaddon would not be so blasé, so foolish as to charge directly into a firebase without dispersing at all. But he knew not what manner of duplicity was hidden behind the posturing of the infamous Warmaster, that genius of the Black Crusades, whose name was spoken only in whispers. He realised the answer a moment too late, when a shimmering blur appeared upon the bridge of the Laurels of Victory. It expanded into a blinding portal of white light, and the hellish denizens of the warp screamed out, Hungry for blood! The bridge of the Laurels of Victory burst into hectic action as the warp portal yawned open, disgorging pale-skinned hellspawn. Leaping forth from a tide of writhing crab-clawed androgynies came a four-armed monstrosity that headed straight for Kalgar. The Ultramarines, many of whom had faced demons before, laid down a storm of bolter that shredded the foremost invading creatures. These were not the slow and methodical plague spawn that had defiled Ultramar, but a fast and dexterous breed that danced through the firestorm and endured grievous wounds with shrieks of ecstatic glee. The four-armed giant bore down on Kalgar as his gauntlets of Ultramar spat mass-reactive shells into its pierced and jewel-strung torso. Lethro Ados and Nemus Adranus of his Victrix Honor Guard stood between their lord and his assailant, but their blows were met by the creature's shimmering shield, and they were battered aside. The demon's great spear darted in. Kalgar caught it behind the tip. <laughs> Slanesh every time. Man. Holding it an inch from his heart, but he could not stop it. For the polearm was slick with nameless fluids. The creature leaned into the blow, and the spear slid through Kalgar's grip to impale him through the heart. Quick as a snake, the creature lashed out a claw and tore out Kalgar's throat. The bridge erupted into bedlam as the warriors of his Victrix guard redoubled their attack. One by one, the demons were fought back by the veterans of Macrag until the battle became a stalemate. When the ship's navigator, Sinioris, revealed his mystical warpie by removing his ornate bandana, the backlash of etheric forces racked the bridge. The four-armed greater demon that led the host fell back into the war with a despairing wail, and, as the navigator advanced, the portal closed. Yet the damage had been done, as Vox reports came from across the fleet, relating similar events on all its principal warships. The dreadful truth became clear. The battle against Abaddon's fleet had been lost before it had ever begun. A dark, new dawn. The Ultramarine's fleet returned to the war-torn planet of Vigilus to find it in an even more desperate state than when they left. 
Pillars of smoke rose high from every hive and population centre, and still the worst was yet to come, for the true architects of the latest string of disasters were drawing perilously close. The demon assault on the laurels of Victory's Bridge had left anarchy and destruction in its wake. A dozen similar strikes had ensured the intership clarion array rang with agonised screams and panicked orders, interspersed with the static of the void. The lead ships of the Ultramarine's fleet were reeling, dealt a crippling blow from afar by Abaddon's hellish allies. Blood swelled across the command decks of a dozen strike cruisers, and strobing images of demonic killers plagued every ship within a hundred thousand miles. Arch Commodore Hetzman, upon seeing Marnius Kalgar with his throat torn out and a gaping wound in his chest, saw only one path left open to him. With the surety of a man used to the burden of command, he made his decision quickly. If they were to turn back now, they could live again to fight another day, and ensure Lord McCrag was brought back from the brink of death. The Victrix Guard, their primary duty to protect their master, nodded curtly in reinforcement of the decision. With the remonstrations of the Ultramarine's officers still yearning for a fight ringing in his ears, Arch Commodore Hensman ordered a fighting retreat. One by one, his fellow captains followed suit, but the laurels of victory led the fleet in spirit as well as in rank. Within the hour, the entire Imperial blockade was falling back, lances and bombardment cannons blazing as they made for their muster point in the orbit of Vigilus. Abaddon's arrogance had proved well-founded, for though his fleet took significant damage, it was far from broken, and its return fire ravaged many Imperial craft in exchange. With the demonic minions of his dark patrons at his beck and call, the War Master of Chaos had crippled the Imperial defence with a single stroke. His passage to Vigilus was all but unbarred. Even as Hensman fought valiantly to buy his fleet time to recover, Manius Kalgar was hurried to the prime apothecarium of the Laurels by his Victrix guard. There he was treated by a conclave of elite apothecaries. His second heart had kicked in as soon as his primary heart had been sliced in two by the demon's spear, saving him from an untimely death. And his Belisarian furnace had triggered a rush of stimulants to keep his system going. His ravaged throat was suited, reinforced and regrown, the apothecaries administering intense regeneration chem baths, cyborgization surgery and a lengthy rejuvenant treatment. Although he survived the ordeal, Kalgar was not unmarked by it and ever after spoke with a faint mechanical burr to his voice. The return of the Imperial ships to the docks above Saint's Haven was greeted with great jubilation by the citizenry below, and in the places not still fraught with battle, there were celebrations in the streets. Although the people were still forbidden from looking upwards, lest they catch a glimpse of the Great Rift, none could mistake the sullen growl and throb of the ship's engines. The Imperial propaganda machine went into overdrive to explain the sudden presence of the fleet, insisting that it had returned to see Vigilus liberated, rather than admitting the truth of its retreat. At the onset of the mission, the Imperial Vox broadcasts had been so insistent that Kalgar's armada would meet with unalloyed success. It was natural for the populace to assume that the enemy threat, the precise nature of which had been carefully obfuscated, had indeed been defeated. There were those amongst the populace that knew the truth, however. These included the sons of Vanadan, 
latter-day scions of the demagogue who had fueled the rise of Storval's Zenshin pyroclastic cults during the War of Beasts. These chaos followers claimed to be able to read the future in the flames. They spread the rumour that the Imperial fleet had been forced to return to Vigilus by the true inheritors of the planet, the worshippers of the ancient gods from before the reign of the Emperor. With the words of Harkon Worldclaimer still ringing in their ears, the people of Storval and Hyperia gave gradual credence to these rumours, until an undercurrent of fear and doubt ran beneath the claims that all was well. The Space Marines of Kalgar's expedition made their return to Vigilus not in a triumphal procession, as the Ministorum would have had it, but as a drop-pod invasion force. They hammered down from battle barges and strike cruisers by the dozens, contrails streaking the skies. This time, they struck not at the orc-held fringes of the hive sprawls, nor at the places where the banners of the pauper princes flew high, but at those areas claimed by chaos. Many of the high spires and citadels were still being besieged, despite the aerial counter-assaults launched by Kalgar's strike forces before the fleet had set off. In places, the sudden return of the Space Marines was enough to tip the balance, and several spires were reclaimed. But it was slowly becoming clear that the Adeptus Astartes were too late to truly have an impact on the rest. The rot had spread too far, infecting the hives from the top down. Kalgar, by this point, had healed well from his grievous injuries. As a prime example of the Adeptus Astartes, and a Primaris at that, his ability to survive trauma was second to none. Viewing dozens of data slates and picked thief relays at once in order to swiftly pass the maximum amount of relevant data, he spent long hours assessing the damage that had been inflicted upon the planet. It painted a grim picture indeed. Dirkdom was lost, abandoned to the gene-stealer cultists at Lord Kalgar's command. Kellex Bane was likewise forsaken, its glacier miners having fled from the Drakari menace haunting the blizzards. Mertwold had held out against the orc assaults battering at its trenches, but its wealthy rejuvenant clients and privileged aristocrats had withdrawn to their fortified palaces and left the common workers to the airborne attacks of world claimers' raptor hosts. Megaborealis was being torn apart by the forces of the Omnisire, the Heretic and the Xenos. The greater Omniscian hoist, the orbital relay that enabled frozen water to be imported from asteroids, was in the clutches of the pauper princes, thus robbing Vigilus of a vital water source. Dontoria Hivesprawl had been tainted by the plagues of Nurgle that had so recently infected Ultramar and became host to a fast-spreading sickness that none could cure. Otek's reservoirs, the site of intense war between the pauper princes, the Space Wars, and the Adeptus Roratas, had been proclaimed quarantined Toxiticus by the Death Watch kill teams that had investigated their purity. And the ever-firsting populace was being driven to the edge of madness by the shrieks of hunting warp talons. Storval, its geomantic sites, tortured by the agents of Marta Vanaden, was home to three erupting volcanoes which were hurling billions of tons of ash into the skies to rain back down as smouldering cinders that burn the flesh. The planet was on the brink of total ruination, and the arrival of the inbound Chaos host would likely drive it over the edge. War in the darkness. The coming of Chaos triggered an epidemic of fear and rage amongst the populace of Vigilus, and in places rioting filled the streets. The reaction of many a soul, when faced with horror and near certain doom, 
was to pray for divine intervention. And it was not only the Emperor that was worshipped upon that stricken planet. The smog clouds above Vigilus parted under the bow wave of energy preceding the Chaos fleet, and the horrifying truth was revealed. The planet was under attack from precisely those forces Kalgar's fleet was said to have defeated. Outbreaks of violent anger and unrest flared up in every hab block. Some took to looting, while others went to ground, stockpiling food and water in the hope of riding out the storm. Much of the populace of Vigilus found relief from the despair caused by the coming of Abaddon's fleet in the form of the Imperial Cult, the Adeptus Sororitas and Ministorum Priests on the planet found themselves being followed around by crowds of devoted pilgrims, ranging from ragged flagellants to organised gangs calling themselves Frataris Militia. All too often, these disciples proved as much a curse as a blessing for the Ministorum forces, but they gave little thought to strategy. Meanwhile, many of those driven to near madness by the ongoing war joined the side of the corruptors and despots, becoming part of the chaos cults that flocked to greet their masters as the ships of the heretic Astartes emerged from the pollution-choked skies. Still more sought solace underground. They embraced the fanaticism of the subterranean cults who claimed to be the true native vigilance, and in doing so, bolstered the ranks of the pauper princes. When the chaos ships arrived, the infestation welcomed a great influx almost overnight. Abaddon had not taken the pauper princes into account when he had formulated his strategies of conquest, for the cult's war leaders had concealed their kin from psychic scrying, as well as from mundane observation. Even as the Black Legion and their renegade allies fought to claim the hive sprawls from the top down, they encountered starward resistance from resurgent gene sects seething up from below. In every false continent, the Chaos Invaders were beset by the scions of the Grandsire Worm, for they would not relinquish the holdings they had worked so hard to acquire. The Chaos Invasion of Vigilus, or the Xeno-Cultist stronghold of Dirkden, attacked in force. The continent's fate had been given to the infamous Night Lords, as well as elements from the renegade chapter known as the Scourged. Their mission was to capitalise on the fear and confusion engendered by Harkon Worldclaimer's Demon Vox broadcasts and drive the hive sprawl over the edge into an abyss of madness and violence. It was a task to which the two forces were eminently suited. Only a small force of Night Lords were part of the invasion. At that time, the majority of their notorious brotherhood was near the Eye of Terror, attacking Craftworld Ulthwy. The Night Lords' leader... Ramagan Savastas had made a deal with Abaddon to ensure he was given Ashenid Non-Hive as the locale of his primary attack. He had learned from his skull-masked visionary brother Vranus that the capital city's large criminal population might prove excellent recruitment grounds for a new generation of warriors, or if that failed, hardy slaves. Yet even Vranus had not foreseen the extent of the Xenos corruption that ran throughout Dirkden. There was something about the psychic gestalt of the gene-stealer hybrids that made it difficult for him and those like him to sense their presence. Whether this was a deliberate obfuscation on the part of the cult's megases or some innate echo of the shadow in the warp that precedes each tyrannid high fleet, Vranus could not tell. Either way, it proved to be a deciding factor in the wars to come. 
when the night lords made planetfall, they slaughtered their way through the streets of Dirkton, torturing those who resisted them. They battered against the criminal fraternity of the continent for several days, for the lowest sinners and recidivists were the only ones who had stayed to claim the hive sprawl. Yet that corrupt organisation was not all it seemed. Its members were being controlled from the shadows. Sevastus, Vrenus and their warband found themselves fighting for their lives as thousands of gene-stealer cult hybrids emerged from false walls and trap doors to fight alongside the criminals of the underworld. The bolters, blades and lightning claws of the heretic Astartes took a horrific toll, many limbed bodies piling so high the night lords used them as impromptu ramparts in the open-roofed halls of Ashenid Nonhive. Still, the cult sent in wave after wave, intending to drown the invaders in sheer numbers. The cult did not risk its pure strain gene-stealer offspring against the Night Lords. Instead, the Primus Hollandesh, sent from Megaborealis to secure the cult's holdings, led several claws of adherents and metamorph hybrids. The shock assault proved enough to break the Night Lords and the scourged alike. Dirkden remained in the hands of the pauper princes. Retaking the Hoist The Omniscient Hoist, that vast pulley mechanism by which the Adeptus Mechanicus drew ice-clad asteroids from space in order to harvest vital aqua meteoris, had been taken by a strike force of pure-strain gene-stealers. With water so scarce, the tech priests launched a concerted assault to reclaim it. The war in Megaborealis had raged out of control, for some time, though the gene-stealer cult uprising had been contained in most of the continent's districts by methodical extermination teams of Skatari, Cataphron servitors and space marines, the heaviest fighting had been concentrated around the vast technological miracle that ran through the core of the Stygian spires and then high into space above them, known as the Greater Omniscient Hoist. The pauper princes had taken the lower levels of the hoist during the War of Beasts, their invasion had been so thorough that their covert agents who had infiltrated the Stygian workforce had been able to extract the access codes for a hundred different vault doors. The upper levels, which were kept to a higher level of sanctification, proved far more difficult to seize. The alarm had already been raised by the unblinking servo skulls that had first uncovered the Xeno-cultist incursion, so the vital areas of the Stygian spires were guarded by clades of Castellan robots, a programme to hammer phosphor bullets into anything without a new spheric aura. However, a claw of pure strain gene-stealers had been able to bypass the Adeptus Mechanicus defences by worming their way up through the water pipes to seize the upper levels of the hoist. Within days, the primary source of Megaborealis's water had been cut off, a plan that had been generations in the making, had finally been put into deadly effect. At the tail end of the War of Beasts, the battle for the Hoist rose to new levels when the Iron Hands, masters of the armoured assault, made a methodical and precise attack on those holdings the Adeptus Mechanicus had designated lost to the Xenos Menace. Before they could make much headway, however, the presence of the Space Marines drew the attention of nearby Orc forces, who battered their way through the hive sprawl to join the fight. Within a matter of hours, the Space Marines found themselves battling two species of Xenos at once. Without the adept calculations and compartmentalised war doctrines of their leader, Clan Captain Galcran, they would have been swiftly overcome. 
The pauper princes took advantage of the reprieve, rallying in the lower levels of the Stygian spires. Then the Iron Hand strike cruiser Dark Spear levelled a punitive barrage on coordinates relayed by Galcran, reducing tracks of the Stygian spires claimed by the gene stealer cultists to blackened smoking rubble. The way cleared, the Castellan robots of their cult mechanicus keepers began methodically working their way through the lower levels, guns blazing. Meanwhile, Skatarian macroclades were dispatched to take back the upper levels from the pure strain gene stealers that had seized their sovereign domain. The Skatari counterattack hit home with impressive force. Unit after unit burst up from disused transit capillaries that led into the sanctified control centre. Routes that had intentionally been left hidden by the warriors of the Omnisire as contingencies should the main entry points be lost. In a matter of moments, the gene stealers in the hoist's control hub found that the tables had been turned. Dozens of Xenos beasts were gunned down by the radium carbines and galvatic guns of the Adeptus Mechanicus infantry. They fought with the fury of righteous zealots, so incensed were they at seeing their holy machinery profaned by Xenos claws. Acting on instinct, the gene stealers clambered up the walls like skittering spiders and ripped away the auto-lumens that bathed the control room in a pallid glow. Darkness descended as the lights were extinguished one by one, and with it came a horror from the void. Emerging from the largest of the water pipelines came the original patriarch of the Vigilus infestation, Grandsire Worm. The Xenos mastermind slashed his monstrous talons through the Skatari with such force their bodies came apart in sprays of blood and sparking wire. Under his psychic control, the gene stealers and metamorph hybrids that fought alongside him sealed the vertical transit capillaries with deft twists of the circular wheel locks. In doing so, they cut off the Skatari reinforcements still climbing up those shafts to join the fight. Eyes alight with an evil intelligence, the Patriarch hammered its gnarled fist into a glowing red icon on the primary control panel. The armoured shutters that were designed to seal the room off from the outside world began to descend, the plasteel plates sliding slowly into place with a series of loud metallic thunks. However, before the control centre could be fully locked down, lances of neutron laser fire burst into the chamber, each a spear of blinding light in the gloom. Grand Sire Worm was caught by one of the beams which blasted two of his muscular limbs from his torso. His brood of pure strain gene-stealers fared even worse, caught in a deadly crossfire. They were annihilated around him. The vertical Skatari assault had been a distraction tactic, and it had worked even better than expected. Anticipating that the gene-stealers would be more than a match at close quarters, the Stygian tech priests had sent their Onager dune-crawlers up the outside of the hive spire. With the metallic plates that guarded their giant talon-like legs humming with electromagnetic fields, they had been able to cling to the hive's metal skin and stalk slowly up its near-vertical slopes right to the top. The surprise assault had come not a moment too soon, much to the relief of the tech priests overseeing it. The dune crawler assault proved so effective that it cleansed the hoist's upper levels of Xenos taint altogether. To cauterize the wound... In Hyperia, the Imperial response to the Chaos invasion of the Hive Spires was swift and focused. When even more reports came in, 
detailing a heretic presence on the other false continents, it became clear that wider and more drastic measures were needed to deal with the encroaching darkness. Word of each new assault reached Saint's Haven via armed couriers, sky flare semaphore, and intel cylinders from the moon of Neo Vellum, and the leaders of the Adeptus Astartes drew up overlapping response plans. Though they had made many tactical gains in the spires of Hyperia and further afield, the grand strategy had to be revised over and over, as it became clear that Abaddon had brought a dark alliance of renegade chapters and traitor legions to bear against Vigilus. Even as the space marine lords poured over charts and data slates of enemy dispositions, 10,000-year-old traitors who had devoted their immortal lifespans to the conquest of the Imperium stalked the hive sprawls with bolters roaring death. Though there were many at the Vigilus Senate who had only heard the names of the forces attacking the planet as whispered legends, if that, to Marnius Kalgar they rang like a litany of disaster from his worst nightmares. Here the ancient enemies of the Imperium were writ large. The Black Legion, present to some degree in all of the false continents, their midnight black armour emblazoned with that most dreaded of sigils, the Eye of Horus. They were not alone, for Abaddon had marshalled an assembly of traitors like no other. The word-bearers, their crimson armour covered in the unholy script of Lorgar, were attacking the armoured spire convents of Hyperia with zealous fanaticism. Their foot soldiers advanced in massed phalanxes with their bolters laying down overlapping fields of fire. Havoc heavy weapon specialists blasting away at repulsor and exorcist tanks sent to intercept them. The iron warriors made drop assaults from vast, heavily armoured warships that hung in low orbit. The principal site of their aggression, the well-defended trench networks of Mertwald, Masters in the art of siege warfare, they brought pinpoint las cannon fire against the bastion networks and fortresses of redemption that had held back the greenskin invaders for so many years. One by one, these defences cracked, for the Iron Warriors struck with terrible speed and strength. The Imperial Fists made haste to the front lines to hurl them back, but they could not be everywhere at once, and the feints and Charges of massed chaos cultists kept them pinned amongst the trenches while the true strength of the traitors hit home elsewhere. The night lords descended upon Dirkden, uh, the scourged alongside them. Though we hoped that they would be assailed by the gene stealer cultists that had engineered the false continent's downfall, Kalgar knew the vile scions of Conrad Kurz would not be defeated so easily and even if hurled back would be likely to refocus their assault on the Hyperia Dirkden Fort Wall and move into the region south of Saint's Haven. The Langtos chain, including the false island of Sardonica and Louvrin Isle, was overrun by a strange machine parasitism, and anarchy was brought to the streets by Abaddon's arch-lord discordant Vex Mechanator. The water purification plants there were rendered hopelessly corrupt by the aura of chaos he carried with him, which unleashed havoc upon man and machine alike. Dontoria was in the grip of an epidemic, 
plasteel shanty structures rotted in every hab block, devoured by a rapacious rust curse, even as the flesh of the humans within blackened and turned to foul slurry. Giant, bulging blisters appeared on the citizens of Grudholv Subsprawl, often in patterns that mirrored the Great Rift. When the blisters burst, they spilled out tiny writhing creatures, demon maggots that grew swiftly into waddling glitchlings whose aura infected machines as well as flesh. Supernatural plague was an enemy that the space marines knew they could not fight. With heavy heart, Calgar considered the fact that Dontoria, too, was all but lost. Calgar was left with little choice but to take extreme action. For the assault of Abaddon and his allies was as devastating as it was swift. Yet having so recently conceded Dirkton to the pauper princes, he balked at the idea of giving up territory to the chaos assault. The matter was discussed with vermint passion in the Vigilous Senate, but at first no one could agree on a course. In the end, it was Lucian Agamemnos, the planetary governor, who helped make Calgar's mind up for him. The upper levels of many hive spires, taken over by the forces of chaos, had been lost. She suggested that a deal be struck with the Adeptus Mechanicus and their industrial machinery brought to bear to cause a seismic disruption of immense magnitude. Using tectonic frag drills and bore hives, they could topple the highest edifices across Vigilus. Calgar was not convinced. Not only would the tumbling buildings crash down to crush thousands of citizens, and the fissures opened up in each hive sprawl damned tens of thousands more, the effect upon morale would be crippling. Furthermore, Lucian had stood in direct opposition to the works of the Adeptus Mechanicus for decades, and a reversal of policy would be seen as a sign of desperation. In response, Lucian instead proposed a systematic program of arson, starting at the throat of each of the largest hive spires. The fires raging upward would cleanse the traitors from the tips of each stronghold, without the Imperial forces having to commit another bullet. Calgar agreed, albeit with a heavy heart. He ordered it done, and the Ministorum-sanctioned Adeptus Sororitas fire teams moved to enact his orders within the hour. The conflagrations known collectively as Calgar's fires were set in every hive to pierce the smog cloud lair, and one by one, the spires of Vigilus burned. Inside the Swirl The secret within the Verulian Swirl was to affect the War of Nightmares in the most profound of ways. What had long been ignored suddenly became the focus of a new military campaign. The giant dust storm to the east of Hyperia Hivesprawl was avoided by almost all on Vigilus. Even the Greenskins and the cultists of the Pauper Princes gave it a wide berth. Those whose curiosity had driven them close to its boundaries had found the ferocity of the Weber system a deadly barrier, and those who lived to tell of it proved a further disincentive for any further would-be explorers. The whipping, high-velocity winds that howled in a great circle around the eye of the storm carried with them billions of tons of particulate matter, grains of sand, flinders of rust and splinters of rock that could shred the skin from a man in a matter of seconds. The storm raged on decade after decade, 
as ceaseless as the Jovian Red Spot in the Sol system. The Swirl was a region so hostile to life, so terrible in its anger, that only those with protective equipment like the Adeptus Astartes Battleplate had any chance of making it through to the eye of the storm beyond. But there were some who had braved the journey, and thereby found the secrets that lay deep within. When the Space Marines arrived during the second phase of the War of Beasts, the Aquilarian Council, Vigilus's governing body at that time, had insisted that to study the Verulian Swirl was a waste of resources. Though it birthed smaller storms that span out across the wastes like the cells of some vile canker budding from the parent mass, the planet's leaders were convinced it was not worth investigating, as every attempt thus far had ended in failure. The Dark Angels ventured to explore it nonetheless, for they had reasons of their own to search the most remote regions of the planet. At first, they had travelled in rugged transports, driving in a sidelong chevron formation so one vehicle could provide cover for the next. When the transports had choked and died, their gears and pistons fouled by sand, the Space Marines had sent forth strike teams on armoured bikes, high-powered vehicles with a profile low enough to slip through the relentless winds. On these, they made it further still, but not far enough. The bikes, too, were fouled by the swirling particulate and ultimately brought to a halt, their machine spirits screaming in anger when their throttles were gunned to no avail. Vowing to reclaim their metal steeds before the end, the Space Marines had then advanced on foot, fighting with every dogged step to reach the Swirl's heart. But they were not to find it. The area covered by the Verulian Swirl was vast, and with visibility so poor and the storm's electromagnetic interference playing havoc with their senses, they were forced to concede defeat and return to the wider war. Yet it pained them to do so, for they sensed that something of great import was concealed within that terrible storm. And they were right. For millennia, the Swirl had hidden an ancient stronghold of dark rock, known by the nameless masons that had built it as the Citadel of Vigilant. It had been claimed long ago by a warband of the Fallen. Those ancient traitors of the First Legion had been conducting investigations into the nature of Vigilus for centuries, and using the planet as a staging post for their own agendas. The remote and hostile location, twinned with the psychic shielding provided by the fallen librarian Osandus, had made it extremely difficult for anyone to uncover the secret at the heart of the swirl. Abaddon was the exception. The despoiler had signed a blood-marked pact with the fallen leader centuries ago, and using this parchment, his sorcerers were able to track the psychic signature to Vigilus, like bloodhounds on the scent of their prey. After Abaddon had helped the Fallen escape a force of Dark Angels in the Pandorax war zone, Osandus had sworn fealty to the despoiler. The Warmaster had suspected that the allegiance of the Fallen Librarian would be useful in the future, and the events upon Vigilus were to prove him right. The time to call in the debt was now. The Void Claw At the spine of the Citadel Vigilant was an ancient weapon known as the Void Claw, a device of incredible power. Its fallen guardians had a dire use in mind for it, but the Despoiler had plans of his own. Upon reaching the planet's orbit, Abaddon's flagship, the Vengeful Spirit, 
tuck up geosynchronous or position above Storval, the vast ship revolving about its axis to level a punishing broadside at any Imperial craft that came too close. So mighty was the Gloriana-class battleship that it smashed aside all challengers with no more effort than an ogryn swatting a gadfly. Though the Imperial Navy mounted an initial foray against it, cleared by the chapter masters who identified its hated silhouette, the giant warship inflicted such terrible losses they were forced to withdraw. Ultimately, the Admiralty reasoned it better not to provoke the vast relic ship, for it only attacked when approached and otherwise hung over Storval, seemingly inert. Abaddon, on the other hand, was far from inactive. He had formulated an approach to the Citadel Vigilant that bypassed the swirling tempest entirely, with the Sorcerer's Teleportorium, a rays of the vengeful spirit focused onto the psychic spore of Asondus, the Warmaster and his hand-picked Terminators, the Bringers of Despair, descended in a strike force, no more than fifty strong. They appeared outside the gates of the Citadel Vigilant in a blaze of dark splendour and called for an audience with those inside. For a long, tense minute, they had no reply. Abaddon had already started stalking Ford, Drachnian raised in his great gauntlet, when the upper drawbridge clanked down and a hooded figure emerged. The parley that followed was not the exchange of old friends, nor even old allies. It was fraught and terse, with the gun barrels of a hundred fallen pointing down from the ramparts. The Black Legion showed not a moment's hesitation, nor a twitch of their guns, not even when the artillery emplacements and macro cannons of the Citadel Vigilant tracked slowly towards them. Although all were on high alert, their guns remained silent. Instead, a war of words began. It was a battle that Abaddon was well equipped to fight, for the Despoiler had brokered deals with the Lords of Renegade Chapters and the Demon Primarchs of the Traitor Legions. Some amongst the Black Legion claimed he had even spoken with the ruinous powers themselves and maintained his sanity, or most of it, in the process. It was for control of the Void Claw that Abaddon bargained. The weapon at the heart of the Citadel was like no other. It did not fire projectiles, but instead forced a breach in the fabric of space-time itself, focusing a beam of crushing energy upon a single point to open a gravetic anomaly smaller than a pearl. Though tiny, this singularity could bypass all known types of force field. The potential devastation that could be unleashed was incredible. The gravity of that anomaly was so strong it could draw all matter around it into its ravening nothingness, a fierce void from which nothing and no one could escape. To the fallen, the Void Claw was a weapon to be unleashed upon their bitterest enemies, provided they could lure them into the right place at the right time, for the spire-like device was intended to engage warships, not armies. To Abaddon, however, it was a tool with which he could reshape the Neckmund gauntlet. The Despoiler outlined a plan to Asandus, whereby the titanic weapon would be fired not at an enemy target, but at the area of space, equidistant between Vigilus and its moon, Neo Vellum. Though small, the resultant gravetic anomaly would have a profound effect on both worlds, drawing countless tons of loose matter high into their orbit. Vigilus, its status as a functioning sentinel world already precarious, would be plunged into an era where even gravity was turned against it. More than that, the Void Claw's fell effects would alter the Neckman gauntlet beyond recovery. 
the fallen librarian, Asandus, was at first reluctant to allow Abaddon access to the Void Claw, as that extraordinary invention was intended to be his secret weapon against the Dark Angels. This was a device so powerful that even when dormant it caused an anomalous weather system to whirl around it. It was so ancient and strange that Asandus did not fully understand it, though he had made psychic communion with its spirit and had reached a rapport with the malevolent weapon sentience. The librarian's plan had been to gather an army of the fallen so large that his former kin, the Dark Angels, had no choice but to investigate in force. Osandus allowed them to learn of the gathering through the deliberate confessions of fallen captives, warriors who had willingly sacrificed themselves to further the wider strategy. Thus, the librarian ensured that the correct information was revealed at the right time, luring the First Legion's remnants to vigilance, in all probability upon the space-going fortress monastery known as the Rock. Once that great warship entered orbit, the Voidclaw would be unleashed, the librarian intended to coax the rock into committing to an orbital bombardment, trusting that the ancient force fields around the citadel would protect his warriors as he returned fire with the void claw. Should the device open a singularity within the rock, it would crush the space-going fortress from the inside out. Yet Abaddon's plan for the destruction of the Necmon Gauntlet was so compelling in its vision and scope that Asandus came to see its virtue. To strike back at the Imperium as a whole would be an even sweeter prize. With the chanting of sacraments and the shattering of ancient wards, the Voiclaw was brought to shuddering, crackling life. Dust whirled into a high spiral, the ground shuddering as the entire citadel was rocked to its foundations. The air itself screamed as the Voiclaw went to work, and a tiny singularity was torn in the fabric of real space, high above the planet. False tides. When unleashed, the Void Claw had a horribly deleterious effect on Vigilus. Just as a moon affects the waters of the world below, the gravetic anomaly pulled everything upon Vigilus towards it, destroying a great deal in the process. The disruption it caused spiraled quickly to the level of a global catastrophe. The terrifyingly strong lure of the Void Claw's gravetic singularity, known thenceforth as the Verhulian Anomaly, had countless consequences for the Imperial war effort. The effects were so dire that the Vigilus Senate was flooded with intel from across the world, and the streets of Saint's Haven thronged with messengers and petitioners from every active front. Subsidiary war rooms were opened in chambers throughout the Governor's Palace, each one a triage and solution centre for a separate theatre of battle. Yet even with Manius Kalgar's prodigious strategic acumen coordinating them, the Imperial commanders found themselves unable to categorise the ever-changing face of the War of Nightmares, let alone reverse its course. By the time one disaster had been reported, two more had begun to unfold. The first to feel the anomaly's baleful pull was the fleet that hung in orbit around Vigilus. In the hours before the Void Claw's thrumming engines had activated, the admirals of the Imperial fleets had watched in confusion as the Chaos ships had changed course, taking up new positions that appeared to have no strategic value. It was Arch Commodore Van Sertoria that first noticed that they were all facing away from the Verulian swirl, but she could not guess why. Only when the gravetic singularity opened did the Imperial Admirals realise that the change of orientation was for good reason. 
The Chaos ships had shifted to points where they could counteract the effects of the anomaly with their engines. The same could not be said for the Imperial fleet. Outrider ships, tugs and cutters that were near the gravity well of the Singularity found themselves veering off course to crash into the Leviathan ships they were supposed to be escorting. Planetside, strings of explosions erupted as all manner of hell broke loose. The Verulian swirl was stretched up into a vast, spiralling cone towards the anomaly, a gigantic talon of dust that could be seen halfway across the planet. Anything small, not tied or bolted down, was drawn towards that great storm by the force of the anomaly that hungered above it. In Hurricane Wreck, the closest orc scrap city, every loose nut and screw began to roll in the same direction, heading out of the city in streams of metal, much to the bafflement of Rag Zaka's mechs and the delight of those grots enterprising enough to chase them down for profit. As the planet's tectonic plates shivered and buckled, the spires of Megaborealis, Hyperia, Dirkden and Storval tumbled and fell. Thousands of lives were lost with each collapse, burning rubble cascading through the streets. Meanwhile, the great Omniscient hoist warped and snapped as the Sacrus Tora Hawking space station to which it was connected was drawn towards the vortex. Neo Vellum was also affected, though the alteration of its course was invisible to the eye. The acid swamps that blighted its surface slid and bubbled as they were caught in the anomaly's pull. The bridges and transitways that had linked each scriptorium were eaten away by the rising caustic lakes, and they too fell, toppling into the vitriolic muck to be dissolved. In the depths of space, the nebulous of cosmic dust that swirled at the edge of the Vigilus system closed in, imperceptibly at first, but then at great pace as they were drawn towards the Verulian anomaly. Above Vigilus, the light of Astrovigila became dimmer with every passing day, masking the planet below in gloom and worsening Imperial morale still further. With one act of parley, by calling in a singular debt, Abaddon had struck a blow against the Vigilus system that would be almost impossible to counter. Water, too, was drawn by the false tides of the gravetic anomaly. The theft of this priceless resource was as much a part of Abaddon's plan as any other consequence, for although his power-armoured legions could survive with next to no liquid intake, the lack of it would cripple the Astra Militarum and further undermine the planet's morale. Combined with the uneasy pulling feeling that every citizen now had in the pit of their stomach, the phenomenon would bring the hive sprawls to the point of total societal collapse. At first, only trickles of water escaped the reservoirs and sumps on the planet's surface. Then these turned to streams and tributaries of the precious liquid that snaked their way from every hive sprawl and into the arid wastes still bound for Vigilus's mass, but lured by the anomaly's pull. Much of the water was lost, absorbed by the porous landscape, but where the source of each outlet was significant, as was the case with the giant reservoirs that dotted across the planet's surface, a glittering river wound its way towards the Verulian swirl. In some places, new and shallow seas formed and flowed across the desert. The movement of water was all but impossible to stop. Hundreds of thousands of dehydrated citizens staggered and struggled with one another as they used turins, tankards, ration tins and even cupped hands to scoop up as much of the Aquarius bounty as they could. 
Initially, the citizens did so with a sense of triumph and wild hope, that most precious resource, usually guarded fiercely by the rich and influential, now seemed free to anyone who could harness it. Slowly, it dawned on them that the water was painfully finite, and that time was short. Scuffles broke out over every newly formed rivulet, fist fights turning to knife duels, then even to gun battles in the streets. Wherever water flowed on towards the swirl, behind it came a thirsting mass of wide-eyed unfortunates. The Imperium's grip on Vigilus, already drastically undermined by the serial invasions that had battered its surface, had been compromised yet again. With the military echelons forced to prioritise their own water supply, a deadly drought amongst the populace seemed inevitable. The Iron Fist closes tight. Vigilus was being choked by the forces Abaddon had unleashed upon it. What had once been a world at war was now becoming a living hell, but it was not only the Imperial forces that were under pressure. While the Gravetic curse Abaddon had levelled against the planet Vigilus was bending the laws of physics to the cause of anarchy and disruption, the Doomsday Creeds, his invading forces spread everywhere they went, along with the strange warp-summoning structures his allies were building across the planet were having much the same effect. The word-bearers, that most devout of traitor legions, were given the task of summoning the energies of the Cisatrix Maledictum to the planet using arcane edifices known as Noctilif Crowns. The Death Guard were charged with spreading their plagues across Dontoria with renewed vigour, while the Night Lords were fighting hard in Dirkton, and the Iron Warriors were engaged with their old foes, the Imperial Fists, for control of Mertwold. However, the Chaos Forces did not go unopposed. The Imperials, though reeling, were not yet defeated, denied their eeries and spire tips by the controlled infernos known as Kalgar's Fires. The Chaos Invaders had taken the war into the cities and the parched wastes beyond. Some of the traitor legions, the World Eaters foremost amongst them, were content to slaughter and destroy, as the defenders of the giants, a series of massive crenellated plateaus in northern Otek, found to their cost. Others, such as the Alpha Legion, engaged in a devastating array of covert actions, while the more devout legions pursued a war of indoctrination into the cults of dark worship. Now was the time for all-out war, and neither traitor nor renegade shirked from their duty to cause as much carnage and madness as possible. Rather than trying to take on all of his foes at once, Kaldar and the leaders of the Vigilus Senate made use of their local knowledge to wage a campaign of misdirection and entrapment. Though the confusion, rioting and panicking in the cityscapes precluded any cogent military plan here, out in the wastes the relatively open landscape was a canvas upon which Kalgar could work a strategic masterpiece. By manipulating the demeanours of their foes, the Imperial forces would drive one enemy into another, thus ideally obliterating both. It was a tactic inspired in part by Kripman's Gambit, a strategy only to be used in the direst of circumstances, yet it was effective. Amongst the Space Marine forces that had fought during the War of Beasts, there were many who had learned firsthand of the reckless attitude of the Orcs and knew enough of the madcap, velocity-obsessed mentality of the Speedwire to roughly predict its movements. 
Conversely, the Orcs had learned afresh that a foe clad in power armour would always give a good fight, and to the Greenskins, one space marine was much the same as another, no matter what sigils it wore or what cause it fought for. Armed with this knowledge, Kalgar and his fellow chapter masters ordered their forces to mount a series of fighting retreats enacted with impressive precision. They led the battle-hungry World Eaters, Crimson Slaughter and Red Corsairs out of the cities and into the wastes. This frequently meant leading the foe through relatively open terrain, and in doing so the Imperials suffered heavy losses, not just from the Orc gunners in the cities taking opportunistic shots at these easy targets, but from Chaos Invaders who had taken up position in the higher stories of the hive sprawls to level firepower against Orc and Imperial alike. Yet this was a price worth paying, for the action opened a new front that would absorb a great deal of the Chaos Attack's focus. The Orcs of the Speedwire, their eyes drawn to the explosions and trails of fire in the distance, made haste for the devastating clashes between Loyalist and Traitor that were now erupting in the wastes. Fully anticipating the tide of vehicles they would summon with the spectacle of open war, the Loyalists withdrew swiftly and in good order, extracting via Thunderhawk gunship and bulk lander, while the jeers and bellow challenges of their treacherous cousins rang in their ears. The Chaos forces, not having as much in the way of aerial assets, were not able to evacuate in time from the kill zones into which they had been lured. They were quickly set upon by the orcs of the Speedwire, who relished the fresh challenge of these new opponents. The first handful of greenskin vehicles were gunned down and cut apart by the Chaos troops as they turned their fury upon the advancing Speedwire. But close behind the first orc vehicle came a score, then a hundred more. The heretic Astartes could not hope to stop them all. In the space of a few scant hours, the smoke pillars reaching high over the wastes had drawn thousands more roaring, belching, bullet-spitting vehicles to the open war zones. Even the World Eaters found themselves hard-pressed, for the Orcs were emboldened by speed and numerical superiority, to such an extent that they could not be broken. So it was that the Xenos Bane, that had torn Vigilus asunder during the War of Beasts, proved to be an effective defence in its own right for the beleaguered Imperial forces. The Secret of the Spears the Adeptus Mechanicus of Styges VIII had been mining spears of blackstone from beneath the planet's surface and storing the mysterious substance in heavily defended silos. Unwittingly, in doing so, they played directly into the Warmaster's hands. Abaddon also had designs on the strange deposits of blackstone in the planet's crust and had been prepared to gouge it out with slave gangs if necessary. Yet with Borehive and Tectonic Frag Drill, the Adeptus Mechanicus had done much of the work for him. Noctilif Stone had a peculiar property that, to those who understood the nature of the cosmos, made it more valuable than any other resource in the galaxy. Blackstone was warp-resonant and could be charged either to attract or repel empiric power. The spear-like deposits in Vigilus's crust had been polarized to repel warp energy by some ancient Xenos technology. It was these that were holding back the great rift around Vigilus, and indeed creating a channel of anti-chaotic force between the Imperium Nihilus and the Imperium Sanctus, forming the Nightmund Gauntlet itself. Though none, say perhaps Fabricator Vosh, suspected it, the planet of Sangua Terra had the exact same spears of blackstone in its crust, held in a strange black suspension 
that meant they always pointed towards Vigilus. The anti-empiric field that thrummed between these spears kept the Netman gauntlet open. Should Abaddon destroy that esoteric resource, the warp storms around the Neckman gauntlet would close in, and the corridor of safe passage would be subsumed completely. Infernal Machines Megaborealis's foremost Blackstone cache, Silo 15 of Thunder Sump, was protected by a vast refractor field. In order to destroy the substance within, Abaddon would have to deactivate this Aegis. The Warmaster of Chaos sent in a vanguard of demon engines, but they met resistance of a different kind. Though they did not truly understand the nature of their horde, the Ted Priests of Megaborealis jealously protected the spear-like blackstone deposits they had unearthed from Vigilus's crust. The enigma of their construction and the strange filigree of channels and holes that ran through them hinted that they may have been fashioned by an alien race. They were an intoxicating source of potential knowledge. Almost as soon as the first shipments of Blackstone had been transported to safety from the deep mining shafts, Silo 15 of Thunder Sump had been fortified as a permanent vault for their storage. The silo was protected not only by stout fortress walls and a permanent garrison, but also by a large domed force field. This was no bastion shield network, but an even more precious relic, a macro-grade refractor field. It generated a barrier that could turn energy, be it kinetic, thermal, nuclear, or otherwise, into harmless flashes of light. Abaddon had yet to release the wrecking ball of his demon engine hosts, and by that time, they were straining at the leash. The brazen beasts, worshippers of the blood god, were known for their preponderance of possessed engines of war, and their fondness for launching several spearhead assaults at once. They had reached the planet not in a flotilla of ships, but in one massive twisted spacecraft, the Caraborite. That space-born colossus had once been their chapter's battle barge, but had languished so long in the Eye of Terror, it was itself now more like a hideous, colossal, half-living demon engine. The mutated battle barge came in dangerously low to push through Silo 15's macro-grade refractor field, flames licking around its underside as that ancient protective shield fought against the Caraborite's sheer mass. Fire was of little import to a machine forged in the hellscape of the warp, and helldrakes peeled off from eerie-like nests of ribbed cables. Vast gargoyle mouths yawned wide at the ship's fore, the klaxon roars of scrap code so intimidating that machine spirits in a thousand barriers and vault seals quelled and yielded their locks in terror. From the ship's flanks, uncoiled clanking, ridged pseudopods made of linked metal plates that stretched down to anchor the ship to the spires of Megaborealis. Down from the steep ramps came entire hosts of demon engines, their numbers such that they pushed through the defences of the tech priests that hammered fire into their ranks. When they attacked, they did so as a vast claw gouging at the Adeptus Mechanicus lines, each spear tip led by a towering titan of war. The speed of their attack was as much a weapon as their strength, for though Megaborealis still had countless clades of defenders active, they could not bring enough assets to bear in time to stop the shock assault. The brazen beasts amassed no fewer than three lords of skulls. Demi-humanoid monstrosities that ground through whole congregations of electro-priests with skull-embossed tracks. 
The packs of forge fiends thundered alongside them like giant hounds accompanying some godly hunter. Using their vast metal claws to bat aside the cataphron breaches that drove forward to intercept them, with crackling blasts of energy. As a concentric circle of Castellan robots formed up around Silo 15, many-legged venom crawlers scuttled towards them, their bulbous abdomens emanating strange, etheric forces as they pounced on the towering automatons and stabbed at them with piston-driven legs. The Adeptus Mechanicus, having armoured their stronghold against all conventional attacks, had discounted one aspect of the Chaos Assault. Sheer demonic savagery. The coming of the Seberite had also caused other forces to rush to the site of the battle. Over the latter phases of the War of Beasts, Megaborealis had been occupied by Greenskins as well as Chaos Worshippers, and they were eager for a fresh challenge. The Orc Warbass Cruel Daka, having circumvented the still-burning wastelands of the Seeping Delta to investigate the Glowy Thing that was Silo 15's refractor field under bombardment, drove his foremost Blitz Brigade, through a hail of Skatari firepower to get to the mine workings of Western Megaborealis, a fleet of massive flatbed trucks carrying the giant metal creations of Big Tanker smashed through the pitted sprawl of Thunder Sump and bullied their way into the silo districts beyond. The armoured assault ploughed through the chaos cultists and renegades that formed the body of the Brazen Beast's army without a moment's hesitation. Though he lost dozens of battle wagons to the heavy firepower of cannon-armed demon engines on the way, Cruel Dacker was not to be stopped, with boxy orc vehicles and chaos war machines exploding all around him. He bellowed a mighty war that drove his speed-freak followers into a frenzy. The vehicular rampage ground a path to the commanders of the enemy forces through sheer bloody-mindedness. When a more fiend stormed into Cruel Dacker's path, he climbed atop his wagon cap, ripped the head from the metal beast with his power claw, and then, as the fiend flailed in its death throes, spat down its neck. The speedwar ploughed onwards. With Cruel Dacker's flatbed megatrucks unloading their death dread and gorkinort cargo, the battle at Thunder Sump swiftly turned into an engine war. Fat-bellied walkers traded bullets by the thousand with the white-hot projectiles that were churned out from the Hades autocannons of Helldrakes and Forgefiends. The vanguard creatures of the Brazen Beasts, who by this time had ripped their way through the Castellan robots guarding Silo 15 and set about destroying the refractor field generators, were too focused on their task to turn back. The Orc Warlord was deft enough to evade the reach of the Lords of Skulls, darting from one wreck to another, and even using the slab-like side of a broken Onager dune crawler as a shield as he closed with the Brazen Beast's commanders. The Warpsmith Gorber Demon Mind, the creator of many of the vanguard beasts, found himself assailed by the bleeding, roaring orc leader, and met his end a cruel Dacker's claw. It was only when the twisted Chaos Knights that formed Demonbind's shock troops finally broke the Adeptus Mechanicus defenders with a massed charge and destroyed the Silo's refractor field that Demonbind had his revenge from beyond the grave. With the Silo laid open and its field dispersed, the Despoiler's mighty flagship, the Vengeful Spirit, gave voice to its thunderous displeasure once more. 
This time, the bombardment of cyclonic torpedoes hit home with planet-shattering force, obliterating Silo 15, the Blackstone inside it, the Brazen Beast Vanguard, and Speed Lord Cruel Dacker, and everything else within a mile-wide radius. Cults and conquest. The bow waves of fear that rippled out from each new disaster to affect Vigilus had alarming secondary effects. Many citizens sought the solace of greater powers other than the Emperor, joining cults that promised sanctuary in this most tumultuous of times. All too often, they were rewarded with damnation. The influx of the common people that swelled the cults on Vigilus promised a new phase of war. Mania was matched against savagery, wide-eyed desperation against callous hate. Everywhere a new and sorry tale was unfolding, and Mortwald was no exception. The coming of the Chaos Fleet and the War of Nightmares that ensued pushed the aristocracy of Mertwald into a state of near panic. When the baleful effects of the Void Claw made the continent's plight all the more dire, extreme measures were taken by the ruling aristocracy. Its defenders had spent a great deal of their resources in repelling the Orcs from the Deanos Trench Network and their Zeller Line. Despite being bolstered by the Imperial Fists, several of their successor chapters, and Imperial Knights from not only Derivar, but also Voltaris, the defenders had achieved little more than an uneasy stalemate. Meanwhile, they had lost ground to the uprising of the pauper princes that had blighted the southernmost regions. The reaction of Deonos Agamemnos and his fellow aristocrats was to stockpile all the food and water they could muster in the inner keeps and citadels of Mertwold's richest districts, this was perhaps understandable from a survivalist mindset, but the continent's rulers took their acquisitive mores to inhuman extremes, donning high-tech spire warsuits and hunting the representatives of Mertwold's poorer classes whenever they petitioned for a fairer spread of resources. The stockpiling continued until the aristocrats holed up in a mortalist spire hive had more food than they could eat in a hundred lifetimes. They also had enough water to wash it down twice over, despite the effects of the Verulian anomaly, draining many of their open water reservoirs. Their endless wealth and connections with the aqua magnates of the planet were a powerful combination. Cults of luxury and youthful immortality came into being, focused around the rejuvenant clinics uh, that Mordwald's rulers now sought only to use for themselves. The consequences were dire indeed. Not only did the outlandish selfishness of the Mortwald elite trigger a wave of rioting that destabilised any region still in Imperial hands, but in plumbing the depths of decadence, they brought the perverted scions of Slanesh to their door. The flawless host, renegades so obsessed with their own excellence, they were convinced they could do no wrong, were infamous even amongst their own kind. Having caught the scent of excess upon the aether, they made for Mertwald's richest sites. They used the still-valid access idents carried by their craft to bypass the layered defences and visit the most beautiful of Mertwald's buildings, unhindered, licking their lips in anticipation of the feasts to come. The glut of violence that followed was so disgusting in its obscenity it defies description. The rulers of Mertwald had been found guilty for the crime of imperfection. Not for their excessive hoarding and sickeningly callous natures, but for not going far enough. The flawless host was glad to show Lord Deonos and his peers 
uh, the meaning of true excess, summoning demonettes to aid them whenever a household guard regiment or rival cult moved against them. Each proud Mordwald spire soon burned from within, its rotten heart exposed for all to see. The outskirts of Mordwald and the western parts of Otek Hivesprawl that were also starved of resources fared little better. The people of these regions had felt the injustice and greed of their superiors most keenly. Whipped into a frenzy of indignation by the cult leaders who had made their way into the continent's outskirts, they mounted a gory revolution that saw the people turn against their rulers and take their heads. Soon enough, these mobs turned into blood cults, and from there into worshippers of the dark gods. Shorn of reason, convinced that their absent rulers were the true evil, and that their only hope lay in defection, they followed the Chaos Space Marines into battle whenever the traitors launched a new assault. The Noctilif Crowns The Noctilif Crowns The ring-like structures of Blackstone, known as Noctilif Crowns, brought a loathsome new energy to the war effort. The crowns had been constructed on Namandgast, perfected en route to Vigilus in the guts of Abaddon's forge ships, and raised on the Sentinel planet by work gangs of indentured chaos slaves. Where the Black Legion's masters of possession determined there was a site of geomantic significance, the crowns were aligned to the exacting specifications of Abaddon's ritualists, and driven into the surface of the planet with long steel spikes. Wherever the Noctilif crowns were planted, the minds of Chaos Psychus flared with a frisson of forbidden power. Those who had any form of psychic sensitivity found strange new phenomena manifesting around them when they approached these sites. Even slaves and cultists without a flicker of psychic potential were assailed by searing visions. The Noctilif crowns were designed to bring the raw forces of the warp to the planet. They had been created from deposits of Noctilif stone, harnessed by the Black Legion over the course of their Dark Crusades from the Eye of Terror, imbued with chaos energy and distributed across the galaxy. This, too, was part of the Despoiler's greater plan. Over the course of the Gothic War, the War Master of Chaos had learned that Blackstone could be polarised, either to attract the energies of chaos or repel it. That knowledge had informed his grand strategy ever since. Where there were deposits of Blackstone, polarised to repel chaos energy, Abaddon would do everything in his power to destroy them. Where there was Blackstone that could be polarised to attract chaos energy, he would seize it and turn it to his advantage. By chiselling into the stone blasphemous phrases and runes in the dark tongue, a sorcerer could align its aura with the dimensional bleed of the warp. Channeling these unpredictable energies using a noctilift crown could lead to a tremendous psychic backlash. In places upon Vigilus, more power than any mortal could possibly use flooded into the minds of those supplicants that sought to harness the crown's supernatural aura. This too served a greater cause, for where a psychic disaster struck, the raw stuff of chaos was soon to follow. Vile Revelations The Death Guard that had first infected Dontoria had gone to ground, working in the shadows to spread disease. At the onset of the War of Nightmares, they boiled out of their hiding places to renew their attack. The Death Guard of Dontoria's Pravda Subsprawl region, led by the methodical and ever-careful plague surgeon Zoculinsis, had sown the seeds of conquest by introducing the Gellapox to the planet, 
Though the quarantine methods of the Adeptus Astartes and their Militarum Tempestus allies had slowed the servants of Nurgle, the search party sent after them had been put down, and firebomb tactics designed to scour the tunnels of their presence had claimed no more than a half-dozen of their number. The cordon, although largely effective against man-sized targets, could not hold back the sludge grubs, glitchlings and eye-stinger swarms that were birthed from the Gellapox, and so the plague spread further and further afield until Dontoria was as much the province of Nurgle as it was of the Imperium. The role of the Death Guard was much greater than purely infecting the Sentinel planet. Their mission was to spread a star-spanning contagion across the entire sector and through the Neckman Gauntlet using Vigilus as a staging post. From Dontoria's principal spaceport, Litmus Dock, they sent freighters full of infected mutants further into space, some of them reaching the Vigilus Mandeville point, despite the best efforts of the rogue trader De Languil to stop them. Over the course of the second and third stages of the War of Beasts, these plague vessels made translation into the warp and reached fresh war zones to infect. Years later, when the hordes of chaos invaded Vigilus, three of these scab-hulled freighters returned from their mission to bolster the armies of their infected brethren. They were so caked with filth and feculence, they looked more like slowly descending meteors than spacecraft as they bellied down at Litmus Dock once more. They landed uncontested, for the spaceport was now firmly in the hands of the Death Guard. There they opened their void locks to disgorge groaning mutants of every size and description. Plague in Hyperia Though the sanctified ecclesiarchal regions of Hyperia were once known as the domain of the Hale and the Sane, the coming of chaos changed that forever. The fear sown through its people by the widely broadcast ultimatums of Harkon Worldclaimer introduced a seed of doubt that was soon to be fed and watered by that most difficult of dangers to fight, rampant plague. It was the Death Guard of Dolorous Strain, led to battle by Gerlock Thrax that split off from the Dontoria invaders and made it to Hyperia. There they operated from inside the same rusted water crawler they had used to bypass the city's defences, venturing out to spread disease and despair every night. Ultimately, it was not the Imperial defenders of Hyperia that challenged them, but the Thousand Suns heading north from Calyx Bane. Yet, by the time the Delorious strain were neutralised, plague was already running rampant across the Dubchek crevasse region. The Purge of Dontoria Dontoria was soon contested once more, but this time the conflict was caused by a schism in the Chaos ranks. The Purge, a powerful band of renegades and followers of Nurgle, had made planetfall on eastern Dontoria and found it utterly repulsive. The heretic Astartes of this strange brotherhood believed in the destruction of all forms of life, for since their fall to the ruinous powers, they saw all living things as either corrupt or potential vessels for corruption. They believed that only by extinguishing all life in the galaxy uh, could a new order rise, and that the quickest way to achieve this was poison and pandemic. This philosophy had begun with the noble desire to eradicate all evil, but when the weakness of man, the fallibility of mortals, and the inevitability of entropy made itself evident everywhere they went, 
Those who would become known as the Purge judged humanity to be irredeemable. That stance only became more absolute as they saw flora, fauna and even the land itself as a potential source of evil. All life was inherently flawed and had to be extinguished no matter the cost. Those of the Purge that took this extremist stance did not foresee that they would come into conflict with other worshippers of Nurgle by killing every living thing they came across. But many of the Plague God's followers wanted to propagate life, no matter how foul. For the Death Guard, Dontoria ought to be a dark, fecund paradise, not a scorched and lifeless wasteland. The Purge made landfall at the Great Choke, seeing its rampant pollution and smoke-belching industrial centres as the ideal epicentre for a wide-scale attack. They set to work, slaughtering citizens and Gelopox infected alike, hurling the corpses of the slain into the furnaces of the Great Choke's manufactorums alongside noxious concoctions of their own making. The greasy black soot that billowed from the chimneys was thick, cloying and far too toxic to breathe. Entire districts of the Zametria subsprawl were swathed in this foul miasma and tens of thousands suffocated in the space of a few days. Even the plants and insect life withered and died. The Purge looked upon their works and saw them to be right and true. Over the course of the next few months, the Purge continued their heretical works, capturing entire districts and turning their furnaces to the purpose of extreme pollution. The air in eastern Dontoria became near impossible to breathe. Those with lungs already ravaged by poor air quality of the Big Fug died in droves. The hardier citizens fled as best they could, only to be torn apart by the Gelopox mutants that roamed the streets. What had once been a teeming metropolis, so full of life, quickly turned into a blackened, soot-stained wasteland, with many of its districts populated by little more than skeletons. The Death Guard, who had worked hard to sow the seeds of Nurgle's ever-growing garden across the western hive sprawl, looked upon their neighbours in eastern Dontoria with distaste, then resentment, and finally, when the Gelopox itself began to die out with open hatred. They put aside their joyous slaughter of the Imperial military and went to war against the Purge, besieging their industrial citadels with a will that even the Iron Warriors assailing Mertwold were said to have respected. Bitter infighting ravaged the Scions of Nurgle, but it was the citizens of Dontoria that paid the highest price. Chaos had taken the highest brawl on every level, from the fleets battling above to the plague-ravaged populace, to the microbes mutating and dying in the charnel battlefields below, and the conflict showed no sign of abating. None amongst the Death Guard or the Purge were able to truly claim victory, for they were locked in a bitter stalemate that not even Calgar sought to disrupt. Abaddon, watching from afar, was content, for Dontoria had fallen. Of man and Xenos. The time was running out for Vigilus. Even the most close-minded and intractable soul could see the planet was on the brink of destruction. The warlords of the Imperium, with their forces committed to a man and all reinforcements cut off by the Great Rift, had no option but to take drastic measures to survive. In every war zone across Vigilus, the situation was dire. Much of the planet was ablaze, thick black smog choking the air and making breathing difficult for anyone venturing above ground level. Water had all but run out, with the vast majority of the citizenry having access to perhaps a thimbleful at dawn and another at dusk. 
Were it not for Lucene Agamemnos's inspired solution of tying its distribution to clocking in at day's beginning and clocking out at day's end, the infrastructure of the planet would have collapsed altogether. To travel from one region to another was to invite being preyed upon by speeding orc hunters or shrieking helldrakes, and with the calculations of Neo Vellum's data saint thrown askew by the Verulian anomaly, long-range communication had become next to impossible. The forces of chaos, invading in such numbers they could not be held back, were crashing imperial defences and Xenos-claimed territories alike. Spires were toppling every hour as the planet's tectonic plates, tortured by the Verulian anomaly, fought against one another to grind closer to that cursed singularity. Perhaps worse still, reports were sent from neo Vellum surviving relay stations that the perimeter of the Great Rift was expanding, like a roiling thunderhead creeping over the horizon and into ominous proximity. When reports from the Admiralty of the embattled Imperial fleet in orbit around the planet were collated and passed, it appeared certain that the Cicitrix Maledictum was encroaching upon Vigilus. Some even claimed to see leering faces in the depths of the malevolent phenomena. Over this period, several senior astropaths reported visions of a pitiless clawed hand crashing of throat, interpreted by them as the narrow passage of the Nekmund gauntlet being closed by an influx of chaos energy. Abaddon's plan to bring chaos in every form and fashion to Vigilus was working, and at a frightening pace. Many drastic courses of action were considered by the members of the Imperial War Council. There were those upon the Vigilus Senate who advocated for quarantine measures up to and including exterminatus, the wholesale eradication of all life upon the planet. But Vigilus was a linchpin of the entire sector, and the Neckman gauntlet could not be yielded without abandoning countless light years of the Imperium Nihilus. The Primarch Gilliman himself had stated that Vigilus would not fall, and the Ultramarines there would rather fight to the last bolts than concede victory and make a liar of their primogenitor. After long hours of circular arguments and impassioned debates, it was the precedent set by Rabute Gilliman that showed the way, inspiring Calgar to an act of diplomacy that made his fellow chaptermasters uneasy in the extreme. The forces of the pauper princes and cruel Dacus Speedwa had taken a significant toll on the Chaos Invaders, the troop dispositions and after-action reports trickling into the war rooms of Saint's Haven painted a picture of battles unfolding where not a single Imperial asset had been assigned. Yet, wherever the Xenos won a victory, they turned their guns on the Imperial troops soon after. There were tales circulating of Orc mercenaries offering their services to the Astra Militarum in exchange for the tanks of their armoured companies, and even data slate reports requested personally by Pedro Cantor of the Crimson Fists of one commander who took them up on their offer. The misguided commander Neregar van Thion had won back the outskirts of the Magentine Vales using a combined force of Astra Militarum armour and belligerent orc mercenaries, but earned himself a death sentence at the muzzle of a commissar's bolt pistol in the process, as is rightly so. The Senate's view was that a lasting alliance with the savage enemies the Imperial forces had battled against during the War of the Beasts was out of the question. The Greenskins were too unpredictable and bloodthirsty to count on when a foe as dangerous as the heretic Astartes was at the door. As for the self-proclaimed true inheritors of the planet, the pauper princes, it was unanimously agreed 
Those Xenos-tainted hybrids were so repugnant that they could only ever be greeted with flame and fury. But the fact remained that the Imperium was fighting a losing battle. Their more manpower was undoubtedly en route from the wider Imperium, for even under the tyranny of the Great Rift, mankind's armies were all but inexhaustible. The chances of it arriving in time to make a difference were dwindling with every passing night. Of the perfidious Eldari, none spoke. The possibility of a pact hung in the air, for Rebute Gilliman had forged an alliance with that ancient Xenos race in living memory from the very heart of Macrag. But to truck with the alien was to invite disaster. This every officer in every war room knew, and some had witnessed firsthand. Even now, the wild-eyed Xenos were using their sleek jet bikes and grav tanks to mount speeding raids upon Hyperia. Kalgar's own extremist guard had paid the price for attempting to deal with the vengeful Aldari of Sam Han. The blood of the fallen Macragians still stained the marble flagstones less than a hundred yards from the central debating circle where the war council was taking place. Emotions roiled in Kalgar's chest. With every new account of disaster that reached him, he felt forced to set aside his doubts. On the second night, after the onset of the Berulian anomaly, Kalgar marched out of the Senate, his Victrix guard by his side, and the remonstrations of intractable Senate members ringing in his ears. Rendezvousing with elements of the First Company, the Lord Macrag made his way to the main bridge, crossing the Ring of Nothingness. There, the Aldari forces were still waging war upon the Tempestus Scions and their Adeptus Auroritas allies, for the warriors of Sam Han had a score to settle with the Imperium. During the War of Beasts, their leader, Ortark Rylor, had been slain. His death had been sanctioned by the Aquilarian Council, who recognised no difference between the Asuriani of the craft worlds and the vicious Drukari raiders that had long tormented the people of Vigilus. The murderous act the warriors of Sam Han would see avenged a hundred times over, and for them the matter would not be settled until every human associated with the death of the Autark lay dead. Upon locating the Aldari, Kalgar joined the fight, firing to kill only when necessary, and instead attempting to bring the Xenos to bay, to pin them down, to suppress and surround those who might otherwise escape on arrow-shaft craft from the next phase of his plan. At the critical moment, during the brief lull in the fighting, the Lord Macrag called for parley. Kalgar's gambit would likely have come to naught, had this Samhan force been led by any other than the visionary Farseer Keltok. He was the former advisor of Spiritseer Quilinarius, whose brother's death had triggered the Hyperia cycle of blood vengeance in the first place. Yet, as much as he also longed to avenge that crime, he had another agenda. A ceasefire was called, and the stage set for a historic confluence of interests. The Penumbral Pact The prospect of a deal between the Ultramarines and the Asuriani was unthinkable to many, had it not been for the alliance Primarch Gilliman had once secured with the Ambassador Ivren, such a truce would have been considered all but impossible. Yet Kalgar's daring and complex plan was put into motion. Barsia Keltok had scried the course of Vigilus's future and had found dire hints of the effects it would have upon the wider galaxy. With the Empire of Mankind fully divided, Abaddon would claim the Imperium Nihilus for his own, 
and the great enemy of the Eldari race would reap the rewards. That, Keltok would not allow. Though ostensibly a member of Clan Morak's war party, he had come to the planet seeking another way. When Kalgar's stentorian tones echoed around the cracked marble walls of Saint's Haven, he was not greeted with gunfire, as Lieutenant Ithros had been before him. Instead, Farseer Keltok held up a hand, sending a psychic pulse to his warriors, instructing them to hold their fire and listen to the Space Marine leader. The chapter master spoke eloquently of McCrag, of the dire threats facing the Imperium, of the Black Legion, and of a priestess of the Aldari, God of the Dead. That last topic caused even the most truculent Samhan wild riders to lower their blades. For a time, the battle between man and Xenos was waged with words, and then as the sun set over the burning spires in the distance, it was not waged at all. The rapport the chapter master reached with the Farseer that day led to the two forces uniting in their hatred of the common enemy, and their alliance lit the dark fate of the planet Vigilus with a flickering flame of hope. The Aldari of Samhan were not known for their forgiving nature. Precisely how Kalgar won their allegiance, he never disclosed, and the actual exchange between Keltok and Kalgar was never made a matter of imperial record. Despite Gilliman's insistence that historitors accompany all Ultramarines' missions. In fact, the records of the interchange between Kalgar and the Aldari Farsia were immediately expunged, never to be entered into any official account of the War of Nightmares. Even now, the Ultramarines cannot speak of what was said between the two leaders as they talked beneath the massive triumphal arch to the west of the statue of the Great Templar. Only the Victrix Guard heard the details of the bargain that Kalgar struck there, and they were sworn to secrecy. Yet three things about that fateful parley are known. The first is that the Farseer Keltok and his senior chieftains accompanied Kalgar back to the Governor's Palace that day. The second is that, from that moment on, the doors of the Vigilus Senate were barred and guarded by two members of the Victrix Guard, who had orders to let none pass. The third is that those members of the Aquilarian Council who had presided on the day of Ortec Rylor's death were never seen by anyone again. Lucian Agamemnos and the Proctor Commander Vanadir amongst them. Considering the matter of honour settled, the eventual Aldari of Clan Morak joined the Imperium in hurling back the Chaos invasion. Not only that, but they lent to the war effort a very special vessel, Vol's Ghost, a near-invisible stealth ship that had plagued the Imperial shipping lanes around Samhan for decades. It was Kalgar's intention to use the Aldari stealth vessel to intercept the vengeful spirit in orbit high above Storval, and by using himself as bait, ensure the War Master of Chaos had his eyes fixed elsewhere. Kalgar's plan was to strike at that which Abaddon held dearest. The War Master of Chaos had already demonstrated a callous disregard for his heretic Astartes' brethren, and utter contempt for the chattel that fought alongside them. That much could be seen in Dontoria, Megaborealis, and Storval. But there was one war asset he held dear, aside from those he carried on his person, and this was Kalgar's target. Should the Lord of Macrag's plan unfold as intended, the ends would justify the means. Should it fail, the planet itself would be forfeit, as would be the Neckmund Gauntlet and almost certainly Kalgar's life. When the other chapter masters heard of what the Ultramarines intended, they took the news with disbelief at first. 
but then with grudging acquiescence. It was known to both the Crimson Fists and the Necropolis Hawks that the Aldari had no love for the Great Enemy, for they had seen the two foes clash before. It would be a fine day for the Imperium if two of their oldest foes could neutralise each other in one fell blow. Distraction Tactics As the chapter masters of the Vigilist Senate made preparations for their counter-strike, a strike with which they intended to cripple Abaddon's defences, the Aldari were fighting a war of their own. Scores of lightning-swift warriors rushed to enact Farseer Keltok's scheme of subterfuge and misdirection. The wild rider armies of Sam Han, the curving silhouettes of their craft, graceful and glorious, even under the darksome skies, raced across the wastelands of Vigilus at extreme velocity. Beyond the spires and towers of Hyperia, they made the perfect bait for the orc speedwire. Being bright red and travelling a breakneck pace, they caught the eye of every speed freak in the vicinity and soon had the orc racers on their tail. The Greenskins' crude but effective guns spitting bullets in great streams. Dozens of Wild Rider clans took part in Farseer Keltok's great initiative, a process he likened to the Aldari myth known as the goading of the Yiga Bulls. The Samhan Suriani purposefully slowed down whenever they outdistanced the Orc vehicle columns. After all, an Eldari jet bike is far swifter than even the most souped-up Orc hot rod, with its afterburners blazing. Only the shock-jump dragster of Mechstop City, built in a frenzy of copycat creativity after the warp-cut incident at the Hyperia Dirkton Fort Wall, were able to give the better of the Samhan riders. At Glaive Point, the orc speedster known as the Red Bullet teleported ahead of the foremost Aldari vehicles, a unit of warlocks with bright trailing pennants known as the Seven Snakes, and punched them from the sky in a storm of corkscrewing rockets and plasma rounds. But for the most part, the wild riders led the orcs a merry dance across the wastelands of Vigilus. When the Greenskins were all but frantic with the desire to wreak havoc, the Aldari led them straight into the teeth of the Chaos Space Marines, who were establishing strong points across the planet. Just as the bullets began to fly and a dangerous crossfire threatened, the daring Samhan riders turned their craft to a vertical heading, speeding up into the safety of the clouds, or into the electrical storm summoned by Farseer Keltok for precisely that purpose. In their wake, they left the Greenskins and the Heretic Astartes fighting a sudden battle that none had anticipated, but from which neither side would draw back. The crowning glory of Keltok's tactics unfolded when his wave serpents, their shields crackling at maximum yield to blunt the thunderous orc firepower raining down around them, led seven full blitz brigades in a headlong charge towards the super-heavy assets and traitor titans of the Legio Decapitarum. With the battle-maddened orcs to the rear and the stoic imperial defenders to the fore, the Chaos Forces found themselves broken in a score of war zones. It was a development that could not be ignored, and it drew the focus of a hundred warlords, eager to earn Abaddon's favour. Only Keltok, Kalgar, and the Imperial Navy attaché to the Ultramarine's command knew that the battle for new Vitier docks was the only critical clash at that time. The Mertwald aerial base was sending every Valkyrie and bulk lander that it could scramble into low orbit, despite being under heavy siege from the Iron Warriors. 
Though the vast majority of the craft had nothing of note in their cargo bays, six of them contained the Death Strike missiles that Calgar had prized from the wretched grip of Grand Castellan Dionos, and amongst them the two Vortex warheads with which the Chapter Master intended to deal Abaddon a deadly blow. In the orbital battle between the outmatched Imperial fleet and the far larger Chaos Armada, a grander tale was unfolding. The tattered remnants of the Imperial Navy made a concerted attack on the Chaos fleet, darting in whenever there was a blind spot like a pack of killer Cretaceans harassing a pod of vast armoured leviathans. They paid a heavy price, losing a good 80% of their number to the relentless, overlapping broadsides of Abaddon's fleet. And yet their foray did enough damage in return to seem credible as a last-ditch assault. These pilots, crewmen and voidsmen-at-arms that gave their lives for Calgar's great initiative died unsung, but their contribution to the war effort was as great as any soldier or general fighting planetside to keep the walls from the door. Ultimately, however, there was only one ship that mattered. Vol's ghost rendezvoused with the vessels transporting the Death Strike payload as they safely reached orbit and transferred the Mertwold munitions into its own cargo hold. Then it made its heading the Vengeful Spirit, and with it went the hope of the Vigilous Senate and their strange Aldari allies. Demise of a legend. The confrontation that had long seemed inevitable was drawing near. Manius Calgar's plan was to challenge the War Master directly, knowing that Abaddon would not refuse the chance to deal such a symbolic blow to Imperial morale. It was a high-risk ploy, but Lord Calgar was convinced it was worth it. The battle for St. Haven was the stuff of sagas and triumphal monuments. Its tale resonates through the history of the Imperium, but it was a clash not just of blades and armour, but of ideologies, and even, some have said, of the gods themselves. Calgar had put into place a battle plan that had such a slim chance of success that even his closest warriors and advisers had bolted it. Yet, there was little other choice. The planet was in turmoil. Even where the Imperial leaders had been able to turn the warmongering of the Xenos invaders to their advantage, they had brought but a minor reprieve, or precipitated a situation where one foe was dealt with, only for another to rise to prominence. By the best estimates of the Neo-Vellum Vitia Scryer Gestalts, the planet's population had been halved, and then halved again. But Calgar would not countenance the extreme solution of Exterminatus. He was challenged by Requilion Xantos, chapter master of the Necropolis Hawks, whose approach to diplomatic matters was to quote the long tracks of the Codex Astartes that reinforced his chosen points. Calgar countered that his own plans were already in motion, and that the Primarch himself had stated Vigilus would not fall. He would not see that Maxim turned into a lie. Manius Calgar walked out from the Vigilus Senatorum and climbed the high steps of the Governor's Palace. His footsteps left crimson smears on the marble slabs, for even here there had been recent bloodshed. He reached the Eyrie of Reflection, the highest level of Saint's Haven that was not ablaze. And there marshalled the Victrix and Extremist Guard into a living fortress. The deep azure of their battle-plate glowed orange in the flames of the spires above. His words, conveyed by Vox Skull Servitors to the loud hailers' networks of the Ecclesiarchy, he issued his decree. It was a challenge to Abaddon himself, face him in single combat, 
to the victor would go the planet itself. The Warmaster heard news of Kalgar's rash gambit soon enough, for Harkon Worldclaimer and his raptor host still haunted the upper levels of Hyperia and made haste to convey the message to their master. As Kalgar's words were relayed, Abaddon smiled, his long canine teeth glinting red in the twilight. In one hand, Abaddon wielded Drachnian, the demon sword of pure murderous intent that would eat the souls of those it struck, and on the other he wore the Talon of Horus, that same baleful device that had claimed the life of the Primarch Sanguinius so long ago. What chance did a mortal warrior, barely a few centuries old, have against such ancient evil? The Citadel Vigilant was a structure replete with ancient technologies, for its construction dated back to the early Imperium. The Fallen knew well what power lay in such artefacts. Amongst them was a fully functional teleportorium, coaxed into life by Osandus and his technomantic allies. It was this asset that Abaddon used to strike directly at Kalgar, his elite Terminators and their demon-possessed thralls alongside him. Chapter Master Kalgar stood in the open atop the Palace of Saint's Haven, no longer protected by the scryer baffles and enigma circuits that had until now shielded him from swift assassination while he commanded the war effort from the Vigilus Senate. Abaddon appeared in a blaze of actinic light, already striding forward to meet the loyalist space marine in combat as the flash of lightning that heralded his arrival faded. His bringers of despair teleported with him, appearing in a crackling dome of force with their combi bolters laying down a hail of explosive bolts. The Ultramarines had been expecting such an assault, having seen a similar tactic on their flagship. They took a single step backwards, then charged as one, shield-bashing the nearest Chaos Terminators away from their master in order to press the attack. Their counter-assault was devastatingly effective. By the time they were driven back by Abaddon's chosen, twelve millennia-old traitors lay dead and bleeding on the ivory stairs. But the Ultramarines had lost eight of their own number in the process. Worse, Abaddon had closed in on their chapter master. The burning spires above the duelists lit the sky red-black, the clouds of smoke forming strange and unsettling shapes as Warmaster and Chaptermaster dueled to the death. Kalgar dodged and fainted, giving ground behind fallen statuary and dropping to rise once more. The armour of Heracles gave him greater movement and reaction speed than any warsuit he had worn before. By hammering out bolt rounds from the gauntlets of Ultramar, he kept his foe from bringing the deadly sword Drachnian to bear. The Reavers, Suppressors and Scouts watching through their gun sights knew that the Chapter Master was deliberately holding back, though none took a shot. With every second that the two combatants spent testing the other, watching and learning so as to find the perfect moment to strike, Kalgar's plan grew closer to fruition. To force Abaddon to retreat now would risk ruining everything. Incensed, Abaddon let loose with his combi bolter, explosive ammunition thundering from the Talon of Horus to envelop Kalgar in a storm of flame. One of the flagstones gave way under the chapter master's weight, and for a moment he was thrown off balance. Suddenly, Abaddon was there, body to body, his Talon of Horus, ripping away one of Kalgar's priceless gauntlets to expose the forearms splintered and shorn of skin. 
Balling his injured fist, the Lord McCrag punched his assailant in the face, hard enough to crack his jaw. The follow-up blow, a thunderous uppercut from Calgar's remaining power fist, lifted Abaddon clean from his feet and cracked his breastplate. The Warmaster's face contorted with anger. The air screamed around him, tendrils of demonic effluvia licking like flames from his blade. In came Drachnian. Calgar made to block with his gauntlet, but the sword cut through it, severing two of Calgar's fingers in the process. The blow rent apart the armour behind it, slashing open the chapter master's primary and secondary hearts in a single blow. Just as Calgar fell to the ground, Harkin Worldclaimer called to Abaddon across a codified Voxlink. The vengeful spirit was critically wounded and seconds away from destruction. It was effecting an emergency warp translation, and they had only moments before it vanished from the Vigilus system altogether. Fallen Skies The short but bloody duel in the spires of Saint's Haven had reached its deadly conclusion, and Calgar lay defeated. But all was not as it seemed. A succession of vital sacrifices had been made in good faith by the devoted servants of the Emperor, and their consequences were finally becoming clear. The demon sword Drachnian screamed in denial as Abaddon turned away from his fallen victim. Motioning the bringers of despair to gather around him, he sent forward a horde of demon-possessed monstrosities to cover his departure. He had achieved that which he had come to do. He had lain low, his ancient rival, and now another duty beckoned. For the vengeful spirit, Abaddon prized above even the Blackstone fortresses he had claimed over the course of his Black Crusades. If it translated at speed into the roiling tides of the warp without him, there was every chance it would be forever divorced from its rightful commander and inheritor. Dark flames formed a hexagrammatic symbol around Abaddon and his bodyguard. Then, a blinding red light enveloped the masters of the Black Legion, and they disappeared. There was a sulfurous stink of dark magic lingering in the air like ozone after a storm, and he was gone. The possessed fiends the war master left behind him moved towards Calgar, stalking like scavengers approaching the corpse of a great beast. Amid the detritus of the battle, the Lord Macrag lay cold as stone upon the flags, his skin white as alabaster. The chapter master's hearts were pierced through, and dark blood drizzled from the great fissure split in his armour. Worse still, the possessed were able to punch a hole in the defences of the Victrix guard, one fell creature tearing its way through to stand above him, claws raised. Any normal space marine would have died then and there, yet within the Lord Macrag's mighty breast, his Belisarian furnace triggered. That miraculous organ pumped restorative stimulants into his system, giving him one last burst of energy before death claimed him completely. It was the inner strength of the Adeptus Astartes and the Arcano science of Belisarius' core matched against the hellish powers of the Chaos Gods. Calgar got to one knee as the greater possessed loomed over him, then stood up fast. His remaining gauntlet of Ultramar, although damaged, was still functioning. He batted the creature away with a backhand blow, then levelled a punishing salvo of explosive bolts that ripped it apart, the device still cycling as it clicked empty. Then the mighty warrior fell back once more, blood running from his wounds. The Victrix Guard and the remnants of the Extremist Guard pushed around him to form a shield, their bolters thundering death into the last of the possessed. Down from the skies came the Storm Raven gunship 
Hope's Blade, its frontal hatches yawning to allow a pair of veteran apothecaries to jump down to the flags. They sprinted over to Calgar and brought their netherkeriums to bear upon him, filling his ravaged system with stabilizing elixirs and life-giving suspensions. Calgar, his face contorted in a rictus of agony, stood tall. He saluted his men, told them to take the fight to the traitors in the streets, and then finally allowed himself to be escorted into the emergency med suite that awaited him within the Storm Raven. Calgar survived that fell day. His secondary heart, salvaged by the secret arts of the Apothecarium, even though his primary heart was cloven through. He was not seen on the front line of the battlefield from that point on, but continued to command the armies of the Imperium from the heart of the Vigilus Senate. Though he was diminished in stature by the grievous wounds he had suffered, his mind was as strong and sharp as ever. The Lord Macragh had denied Abaddon his prize, not through sheer force of arms, but through courage and honour. Yet Vigilus was still fighting a losing battle, not for victory, but for survival. The attack on the vengeful spirit had been exceptionally costly for the Imperial Navy. So many assets had hastened to the Vigilus war zone that the nearby worlds of Neo-Vellum, Omis Prion, Geotrope 7 and Falsehood had been entirely denuded of warship support. In the case of Omis Prion, latterly assailed by the ancient Xenos threat of the Necrons, the planet had been brought to the brink of catastrophe, yet High Command judged the sacrifice worthwhile. Assets diverted to Vigilus reinforced the battered navy there. There were few score ships shored up the holes in Calgar's tattered cordon around the planet's equator, now stretched painfully thin. The majority renewed the assault upon the vengeful spirit over the course of a three-day void battle. Not one of them was able to deal the ship a telling blow, for it seemed every torpedo was intercepted, every lance blast turned aside by some mystical force field. In return, the vast fortress had brought its guns to bear in a series of devastating broadsides that had blasted scores of craft into nothing more than clouds of spiralling scrap metal. Included amongst the vengeful spirit's defences was a coven of sorcerers that scried the echoes of the warp for threats and warned the vast battleship's command crew in time to intercept them. Even they were not powerful enough to foresee the nature of the threat posed by Vol's ghost, however, for the Aldari craft was equipped with complex psychic baffles as well as hologrammatic stealth technology. By the time the sorcerers were able to determine the source of the attack, it was too late. Vol's ghost crashed into the side of the vengeful spirit at great speed, all six of the Death Strike missiles in its hold detonating in a chain explosion. The blast ripped a gaping hole in the battleship's flank, and the Vortex warheads combined to create a whirling maelstrom that began eating away at the vessel. Too large to come about, the ship was slowly being ripped apart by the hole in real space that Calgar's grand strategy had engendered. Klaxons blared as the ship prepared for an emergency translation into the warp. Eliminating the threat of the vengeful spirit was a vital blow that changed the course of the entire war. With the Black Legion elite teleporting back to their flagship and the colossal Gloriana-class vessel making translation into the warp, the shape of the war for Vigilus changed radically. The Imperial Navy, emboldened by the disappearance of the enemy's most powerful asset, drove through the gaping hole in the Chaos Cordon to level broadsides at a fleet still reeling from the empiric bow wave of the spirit's emergency translation. Word spread to the Chaos Army's planet side that Abaddon had begun a withdrawal. 
and soon the Chaos troops began to look to their own self-preservation. After all, the planet was all but destroyed, and there was plenty more of the Imperium left to bring down in flames. Planet in Flames Though the Warmaster himself had withdrawn from the battle, his legions rampaged across the planet still, sowing anarchy wherever they went. The fate of Vigilus remained dire. With the departure of Abaddon and the elite elements of the Black Legion, a sense of relief could be felt all across Hyperia Hivesbrough, as if a choking gauntlet had been removed from the throat of the Imperial war effort. Without their overlord to unite them, the heretic Astartes' war parties fought in an uncoordinated fashion, and this was quickly exploited by the Space Marines. In places, the disparate armies of traitors and renegades fell to utter disorder, battling each other for the spoils of war and fighting to scavenge intact power armour from fallen heretic and loyalist alike. The battle for Megaborealis continued to rage. The Adeptus Mechanicus had plenty of reserves in store, which they had accumulated when a civil war between the dynasties of Stygis VIII and the Agamemnos clan had seemed inevitable. They had enough water, Prometheum and raw manpower to fight on against gene-steel occultists and chaos invaders alike. Whenever the Skatari legions wavered, their tech priest masters would instill them an iron resolve using remote data tethers, and they would fight on. The priests of Stygis VIII had spent centuries unearthing the Xenos-crafted wonders of the planet, and they had no intention of abandoning their treasures. However, when the World Eaters joined the fray, the Skatari were outmatched, and even the Cataphron Breachers and Castellan Robots found their firepower could not drive the foe back. Only when Fabricator Vosk made a formal alliance with the Iron Hands, yielding great swathes of information about Megaborealis and the forces defending it, did the Imperium turn what had been a slaughter into a decisive counterattack? The Skatari's superior numbers and the Iron Hand's calculated strategies allowed the joint Imperial force to divide and compartmentalize the enemy, foiling them one after another with sacrificial feints, delaying tactics and overlapping withdrawals, then hammering them from afar with artillery strikes until there was not a single heretic left standing. On the western reaches of Megaborealis, Silo 15 had been ravaged, much of its Blackstone reserves blasted to flinders by the bombardments of the Black Legion. But the Adeptus Mechanicus had secreted several minor caches of Blackstone all over the planet that the Chaos Space Marines never found, and there was still a great deal of the strange mineral known as Noctilith buried in Vigilus's crust. The planet's astonishing ability to hold open a channel of reality between the Blackstone Spears and its crust and those of Sangua Terra, its twin world on the other side of the Cicitrix Maledictum, had been diminished but not destroyed. A citadel besieged. When the Verulian swirl was finally dissipated by the gravitational anomaly high above, the citadel vigilant was unmasked. The Dark Angel sped towards it first for they had been waiting for just such an opportunity. A mounted force of White Scars began riding towards their position, intending to reinforce their fellow Adeptus Astartes, while also hoping to uncover the reasons why the Dark Angels had abandoned them during the War of Beasts. However, they were struck by a stasis weapon en route, becoming trapped in a field of frozen time. Though the White Scars never found out the truth, that stasis anomaly had been created by a squadron of Dark Talons, the specialist jailer ships of the Ravenwing. As such, when the attack on the Citadel took place, 
It was only the Dark Angels that were present. Despite the disorientating pull of the Verulian anomaly, the Dark Angels attacked with stubborn ferocity, pouring in more and more troops until they broke open the walls of the Citadel and took the fight to the heretics garrisoned within. Though none aside from the Sons of the Lion knew for sure, it is thought they sustained severe losses in the process, for the Dark Angels departed vigilous as soon as the siege was concluded. The details of the assault have been scoured from Imperial records. When the White Scars reached the site, not a single soul, nor even a corpse, was found within the Citadel's walls. Yet the Void Claw had been disabled. Its core, along with the most vital parts of its machinery, were missing, and high above it, the Verulian anomaly had dwindled away to nothing. Aftermath. Apocalypse had come to Vigilus, and yet still the Imperials would not relinquish it. It mattered little to the Lords of War that fought over it how many billions of lives were lost. To them, such concerns were the province of lesser men. History may yet absolve them, given the underlying truths of Vigilus's existence. Though Hyperia was still contested, the hive sprawls of Otterk and Dirkden were officially considered lost, the only battles still raging those of salvage and retreat. Dontoria was quarantined in its entirety. In the far south, Calix Bane had grown colder and more hostile than ever before. In their war for territory against the Thousand Suns, the Drakari had utilized stolen terraforming technology to summon blizzards, conjure swathes of permafrost, and form endless snowdrifts to confound their enemies. The Xenos raiders had subsequently gathered hundreds of thousands of slaves from the rioting districts of Dirkden, Ottek, and even southern Murdwold, but the defences of those regions had collapsed. The Jakari transported their captives back to Kamora, no small amount of Adeptus Astartes amongst them, including several squads of necropolis hawks rendered insentiate by an eldritch weapon of the homunculi. The Ashuriani too chose to withdraw, with the deaths of much of the Aquilarian Council, including the Hyperion branch of the Agamemnos dynasty, their advisers and the Tempestus Scions who had enacted their wishes, the Eldari considered the blood debt to Samhan settled. The loss of Vol's ghost would be mourned, for that exemplary ship could not easily be replaced, but to Farseer Keltok the sacrifice had been worthwhile. Dealing such a decisive blow to the War Master of Chaos was worth a hundred such vessels and more. What became of cruel Dacca's speedwire, none could say. In the planet's cityscapes, the forces of the orcs were all but spent. Having dashed themselves against the defences of the Imperium and then taken the fight to the Chaos Invaders with just as much gusto, they had suffered horrendous losses. The wastelands, however, were still infested by the greenskin menace, and long dust trails scarred the orbital picked captures taken by Neo Vellum's surviving Augur stations. Their enthusiasm for war was unabated, and they continued to be drawn to the attritional conflicts that typified the last stages of the War of Nightmares. With rumours that two-thirds of the scrap cities were still fully operational, the orcs continued to present a very real threat to those that would venture across the wastes. Worse still, word had spread to orc hordes across the galaxy that Vigilus was a site of a really good war. From systems all across the Nekmun subsector, Orc fleets set their course for that embattled world, hoping to join the fun before it was too late. The pauper princes fought tooth and nail for their hard-won holdings, 
First and second generation hybrids fought alongside pure strain gene stealers and even grandsire Worm himself to hurl back the Chaos Invaders, winning bloody victories in some theatres of war, even as their followers were pitilessly put down in others. They still infested Dirkden from top to bottom, but ultimately their uprising had been premature, and over the course of the War of Nightmares their long-planned conquest was left in tatters. The Xenos cultists looked to the skies every hour, hoping for a sign of their tyrannid deliverers, come from the void to claim the planet for their rightful bounty. But they saw only chaos, their eyes drawn inexorably from the darkness of empty space to the oppressive horror of the Great Rift. The Imperium's foes had slaughtered one another to the point that it seemed the United Imperial Forces would be able to endure the storm that had battered the planet for so long. Its propaganda machine ground slowly back into action, claiming each new victory, whether a minor skirmish or the collapse of an entire front, as a critical turning point in the planet's fortunes. The preachers and commissars of the Imperial war effort talked of hope amid the terror, as one chaos force after another withdrew. They spoke of a victory, all but one, and how it was always darkest before the dawn, even though the choking soot in the air and the raging wildfires on every horizon told a different story. The long journey towards recovery had begun. Though the Imperial presence upon Vigilus had been reduced to little more than a shattered collection of traumatized survivors, the planet itself endured. The Negmon Gauntlet, though it had been narrowed by the destruction of much of the planet's Blackstone, was still intact, and a corridor of real space still existed between the Imperium Sanctus and the Imperium Nihilus. When the remnants of Neo Vellum's Lunar Choir re-established a psychic connection across the rift, there was great rejoicing. The planet had not been cut off from the light of Holy Terror, and the grace of the Emperor was still upon them. Only when the lords of Neo Vellum received clear visions from the other side of the Great Rift did they feel a shadow of trepidation settle upon their hearts. The messages spoke of a monstrous evil, first seen during a battle for the stars themselves. It could destroy a world purely with the power of its blazing lance. That lance was covered in blood from a holy crucible. The meaning of the vision was scrutinized by a dozen senior astropaths. The battle for the stars themselves was the Gothic War, a black crusade so violent that suns died in its wake. The blood from a holy crucible spoke of Sanguaterra, whose name translated from High Gothic to the blood of Earth. The crucible in which the human race itself was born, and the lance, ready to destroy a world, that lance was no less a weapon than that wielded by Abaddon's former flagship. That fell craft's name was spoken in hushed tones, its import clutching at the heart with a cold claw of dread. The Planet Killer. War Zones. The landscape of Vigilus changed drastically following its initial invasion, riven by widespread quakes and scorched by wildfires. The machinations of Abaddon were to break the planet completely. Vigilus was once the domain of several imperial institutions, all held in a precarious balance by the Pact of Fire and Steel. The Adeptus Mechanicus had sovereign rule over Mega Borealis, 
while the Ecclesiarchy had the majority of its presence in Hyperia Hivesprawl. Dontoria, Ortec and Dirkden were ruled over by the seconds of the Agamemnos dynasty, each keen to feather his or her own nest at the expense of their peers. Murdwald, the planet's breadbasket and home of the famed rejuvenant clinics that brought the planet so much wealth, was ruled over by Dionos Agamemnus, a brother of the planetary governor Lucine. The planet's false continents, already more interested in looking to their own fortunes than presenting a united front, became even more isolated over the course of the War of Beasts. Some fought losing battles, others doggedly hung on to their independence by defending their most critical locales, but all were assailed by the Xenos threat to some extent. The planet hung in limbo, even when the Imperial defenders were reinforced by the Adeptus Astartes and the alien usurpers hurled back on a score of France. There was nowhere on the planet that could be called free of Xenos' presence. The land masses burned, and the skies, already thick with pollutants, turned black with choking chemicals of industrial zones aflame. Into this hellish twilight of war came Abaddon's invasion. Once more the false continents burned, and this time the lines between attacker and defender blurred more than ever before. Many gave up hope entirely as word of the chaos incursion spread throughout the populace, joining redemptionist cults and even offering themselves to the chaos forces in the hope of buying their own survival. Many were accepted, or at least allowed to live, by the traitors and renegades that stormed through their homesteads, only to be expended as cannon fodder when the Imperial troops launched their counterattacks. When Abaddon seized the Void Claw in the citadel at the heart of the Verulian Swirl and used it to open a pinpoint singularity between Vigilus and Neo-Vellum, he altered the landscape of the planet beyond recognition. Cascades of rubble, wrecked vehicles and anything that was not secured to a solid installation rolled through the streets towards the wastelands above which the gravitational anomaly had opened. More importantly, the waters of Vigilus trickled towards the site, harnessed by this new force to ensure the populace had virtually no drinking water. An epidemic of thirst spread across the planet, adding further fuel to the panic caused by the tectonic disruption beneath the already tortured surface of the planet. The Chaos Space Marines reveled amongst the carnage, deliberately spilling slicks of Prometheum that, when ignited, crept across the wasteland as lakes of fire, while their ships, high above, toppled burning hive spires into the cities below with sustained heavy barrage. The planet was consumed by terror and anarchy, and there was little chance of its salvation. Dontoria Hive Sprawl Once the most populous of all Vigilus's hive sprawls, Dontoria was ravaged by disease and torn apart by constant battle. From the opening phases of the War of Beasts, its people, too poverty-stricken or oppressed to flee, died by the million. Dontoria Hivesprawl once teemed with human life. Not only had this false continent expanded so much over the last few centuries, it almost encroached on Mertwold and Megaborealis. It had also spread into the wastelands beyond. Before the War of Beasts, Dontoria had been considered one of the three most vital components of Vigilus's infrastructure, its endless amount of manpower, a vital boon in the planet's defence. Over the course of the War of Nightmares, that same population density became a bane. The plagues unleashed upon that metropolis, amongst them the 
much-reviled Gellapox spread from one district to another, and with horrible swiftness due to the citizenry being so densely packed. The Ultramarines knew well the dangers that the Scions of Nurgle posed to a planet's populace, having faced them before. Together with the Necropolis Hawks, the Iron Hands and the Crimson Fists, they quarantined the heart of Dontoria. Yet despite the efforts of the Imperium to maintain the cordon, in the space of a few weeks dozens of active war fronts fell to deadly sickness. Dontoria's major source of water, Lake Dontor, was claimed by the Genestealer cult during the War of Beasts. Over the course of the War of Nightmares, it was polluted by agents of Nurgle to such an extent that even the most hardened Xenocultist metabolism could not process it. Bereft of drinkable water and afraid of contracting a lethal plague, the citizens that made their livelihoods on the fringes of Dontoria fled into the wastes, taking their chances with the Orc menace instead. In an effort to protect the quarantine, Space Marine kill teams eliminated many such interlopers, lest they carry sickness to the other hive sprawls. Eventually, however, the Space Marines were redeployed to other war zones, for they were deemed too valuable to waste on garrison duties. Dontoria was left in the hands of their Astra Militarum allies. This proved a costly mistake, for ultimately the continent fell entirely to plague, a foe that the firepower of the Imperial Guard could not defeat. Dontoria was thus abandoned by the Imperium. Dirkden, Hive Sprawl Dirkden was called the Cursed Continent. After a disastrous political standoff with Hyperia, years before, its fortunes took a sharp downturn. During the War of Nightmares, it held out against the Night Lords and the Scourged, but only because the area was so thoroughly infested by gene-stealer cultists. Dirkden was known as a place of ill omen, even before it fell to the insurrection of the pauper princes. It was as symbolic of the Imperium's flaws as Hyperia was an inspiring incarnation of its might. There, no statues were raised to the Imperium's glory, only the half-completed and skeletal tangle of metal that was Ashenid Nonhive. Despite being abandoned partway through its construction, that monument to failure became home to millions of impoverished citizens nonetheless. They built scaffolds, gangways and cabling of their own to fill the megastructure, the edifice becoming more like a mound spider's conical web than the solidly built hive cities of nearby Hyperia. It was a haunted place even before the coming of chaos. The Dirkden gangs that made Ashnid Nonhive their home came from a criminal dynasty that stretched back a dozen generations, encompassing everything from protection rackets to kidnapping, gun running, dealing in banned substances, and even wholesale murder in the case of the wide-scale arson attack known as the Long Inferno. The criminal families that ruled the Ashenid region were engaged in nefarious activities. The Adeptus Arbites had long ceased attempting to curtail. To aid their smuggling missions, they established an extensive network of tunnels that linked the Hive's mining sites, all the way from Raskalid Underworks in the southwest to Glaive Point in the north. It was often said upon Vigilus that there was as much of Dirkton Hivesprawl under the ground as there was above it. Decades before the war, the city's council failed to capitalise on Dirkton's connection to Hyperia via the Fort Wall after a disastrous trade deal. Sabotaged by leaders of the criminal dynasties, the council slid into disgrace. 
and was ultimately deposed. After that, Turkton was largely written off by the Imperium's armed forces as a wasteland that was more trouble than it was worth. It became a haven for the subterranean operatives of the gene-stealer cult ever after. Early in the War of Nightmares, this rotten vista was invaded by the renegades known as the Scourged. Their sudden attack even threatened the sanctum of Grandsire Worm, who at the time was deep in the subskyne caveways, feasting in a ritual intended to empower him further. The assault was pitiless and sudden, the renegades slaughtering a great many hybrids of the first and second generation, as well as whole broods of pure strain gene-stealers. If it had not been for the pauper princes' eagerness to martyr themselves, hurling their bodies in front of their beloved leaders whenever a gun was aimed towards them, the ruling elite of the Dirkton gene sect might have been crippled at a stroke. As it was, the cultists counterattacked with seething fury, their numbers such that the scourged found themselves pushed back. The visionary renegades had prescience enough to sense each ambush before it came, however, using their supernatural ability to perceive lies. They could see through every facade and misdirection, and it was this that kept them alive. Their uncanny ability also allowed them to see the greater lie at the heart of the gene-stealer cult. The chapter-master of the scourged, Gallus Herodicus, sent a psychic message to his lieutenants, enabling them to uncover that deadly deception and, in doing so, turn it into a weapon. High above the Patriarch's Genesis pool, where a great many cultists were gathered, an image flickered, a mirage conjured by the foremost sorcerers in Herodicus's warband. It showed what would be the final fate of the pauper princes. The sky was filled with grotesque bioships, and the ground teemed with blade-limbed Xenos beasts known as Tyranids, who set about massacring human and orc alike with terrifying efficiency. The pauper princes cried out in glee, faces beaming in rapture at the vision. Then, in the mirage, the Tyranids turned on their loyal worshippers, exhibiting the same savagery with which they cut down the imperial citizenry before them. The pauper princes in the chamber watched as their future selves were disembodied, then messily devoured. The scourged believed that when faced with the truth of their existence, the cult would self-destruct and utter bedlam would break out. But the devotion of the pauper princes was bone deep and not easily shaken. The cry went up, lies, until the roof of the cavern shook and dust trickled down from above. Confronted by a horrible reality, the hybrids of Dirkton burrowed further into their delusion, their strange faith strengthened all the more by this challenge to it. The scourged were attacked with renewed ferocity, and a full half of their number slain by claw, bullet, and talon. They did at least cause such disarray that Sylvestus and his night lords were able to evade the throng attacking them and make a bid for freedom. Despite appearing dilapidated, the false continent was effectively a fortress, and far harder to break than any had imagined. Mega Borealis Mega Borealis was the sovereign domain of the Adeptus Mechanicus, whose industry beneath the planet's crust had revealed a vital secret. Assailed during the War of Beasts by the gene-stealer cultists seeded there, the hive sprawl also became a primary focus of Abaddon's invasion during the War of Nightmares. From the ravaged lands of Megaborealis, the tech priests of Stygies VIII 
had delved deep beneath the surface of Vigilus. What they sought had been long hidden. Of the priesthood of Mars, perhaps only Belisarius' core knew its true nature. Yet it was vital to the future of the planet and the continued existence of the Nekmund gauntlet itself. Every towering boarhive, every abyssal mine or delver crevice was listed in the Neo-Vellum data stacks as producing a variety of conventional minerals. But in truth, they were all turned to the extraction of the same substance. For beneath Vigilus's crust were deposits of the arcane mineral Noctilith, also known as Blackstone by the Skitari that safeguarded it. The planet's crust was pitted with dozens of sphere-like hollows that were filled with suspensions of black liquid. These spheres appeared like bubbles in the planet's strata, and if there was a pattern to their dispersal, none could discern it. Within these, strange blackstone deposits floated, each shaped like a javelin or needle, always pointing in the same direction, no matter the planet's position around Astrovigila. The tech priests observed that these needles always faced down the throat of the Nekmund gauntlet, but it was Fabricator Vosk who concluded that the Blackstone in fact created the gauntlet by projecting a long-range contra-empiric field. The richest nodes could be found under Borhive's Ultris and Scalaris, and Mineworks West 23. When the rest of the hive sprawl was burning in the fires of war, assailed by orc invaders, gene-stealer cultists, and the demonic machineries of the brazen beasts, the tech priests ignored Kalgar's orders to withdraw from these vital zones. Even the Stygian spires, site of the space elevator that provided Megaborealis's precious water, were considered of secondary importance by comparison. To the Adeptus Mechanicus, discovering the secrets of the Blackstone was more important than life itself. Were it not for their layered defences and single-minded devotion to their cause, Abaddon would likely have torn their bounty from the planet within the first few days of his invasion. The taking of the Greater Omniscient Hoist by the pauper princes had been a strategic masterstroke. Even as the main body of their cult was taking punishment from the Iron Hands sent to relieve the Stygian spires, the pure strain gene-stealers had conquered the Hoist's control centre, before that level was subsequently liberated by an Onager Dunecrawler counter-assault, some of the Xenos creatures had ridden the vast pulleys out of the construction and into space, towards the mining station of Sacrus Tora Hawking. The first phase of the War of Nightmares saw a brief space battle between the upgunned ships of the Magma Hound's Renegade chapter and the cannon servitors of Sacrus Tora Hawking. Though the space station had an arsenal of lance batteries and torpedoes, it took a heavy bombardment from the Magma Hounds and their allies. As a static target, it was easy prey for the fast-moving craft in the Heretic Astartes Armada, and while its defenders fought bravely, they were ultimately overcome by the volume of firepower sent their way. The Magma Hounds could almost certainly have completed their mission to destroy Sacrus Tora Hawking with an orbital bombardment, but instead they launched boarding torpedoes sent on a vertical assault vector into the uppermost surface of the space station. Each cylinder cut through the station's outer hull with its melted array, slamming its clamps through the resultant hull and disgorging a dozen power-armoured killers into the corridors beyond. They sought one thing, the blood of the foe. The servitors and mining personnel aboard the station fought hard against the renegades, 
but were soon outmatched. Only when the blood-hungry magma hounds reached the upper terminus of the space elevator did they find heavy resistance, not from the Skatari or the worker clades that ensured the ice-locked asteroids reached the planet below, but from the gene-stealers that had infected them. In the close confines of the space station, the renegades suddenly found it was they who were fighting a losing battle. Around every corner, behind every automat door panel, lurked another Xenos monstrosity hungry for the kill. Realising they had strayed into a fight they could not win, the Chaos Space Marines detonated a clutch of melter charges and breached the space station's hull, the equalising pressure blowing them and their alien nemesises out into the darkness of space. Though many of them were later recovered, the magma hounds never reached the surface of Vigilus during the War of Nightmares. Neither did the last asteroid that Sacrus Tora Hawking had captured for processing upon Mega Borealis far below. When the Verulian anomaly's gravitational pull buckled and twisted the hoist's skeletal superstructure, ultimately wrecking its carbon fibre winch apparatus, another of the planet's principal sources of water was cut off completely. For everyone but the water magnates selling aqua to the highest bidders in the hive sprawls below. It was a dire turn of events indeed. Mortwald Following the invasion of the Speed War, Mortwald was hammered by relentless waves of attack by the barbarous greenskin hordes. At the time of Abaddon's invasion, it was still holding out that the extreme measures taken by its rulers attracted a new kind of predator that conquered from within. The verdant land of Mertwold formed the principal source of food for the planet Vigilus. Its sprawling irrigation networks, dotted with thousands of cactus farms and forests of succulents that could thrive even in the arid atmosphere, that alone made it vital indeed, especially when combined with its extensive underground hydroponic suites. The continent's reputation for grandeur, however, it came from the rejuvenant clinics of Ageless Weald, Immortalis Spirehive, and Rejuvenous Strongport. The upmarket Medeke facilities of the rejuvenant clinics provided anti-thanatosic and youth-giving Phoenicius treatments to those visitors rich enough to extend their lifespans a few decades, for an astronomically high price, of course. Together, these sites supplied the false continent with a near-limitless supply of wealth, ensuring that the ruling elite could live in luxury to which they had long become accustomed. It was that same opulence that would bring about the downfall of Mertwold's most well-defended fortresses and citadels. The coming of the Chaos Fleet and the War of Nightmares that ensued pushed the aristocracy of Mertwold from their habitual complacency into a state of near panic. The false continent's defenders had committed almost all of their resources against the orcs attacking the Dionys Trench Network and Zeller Line. Despite being bolstered by the Imperial Fists, several of their successor chapters and contingents of Imperial Knights from Duravar and Voltaris, the Imperial forces had achieved little more than an uneasy stalemate. Meanwhile, in southern Mertwold, the Imperium had lost ground to an uprising of the pauper princes, that had gradually conquered the biosantic flesh plants during the War of Beasts. Dionus Agamemnos and his fellows had sent elite Astra Militarum regiments stationed in that province to combat them. So it was that when the Iron Warriors made planetfall to the east of the Dionus trench line at the onset of the Chaos invasion, 
the defenders of Mertwold had very little in the way of military resources with which to stop them. It was at that point that the renegade chapter known as the Flawless Host reached Mertwold's richest areas, taking sadistic pleasure in the ease with which they were able to overcome the household guard of each aristocratic dynasty. A slew of atrocities was to follow, as the flawless host punished the rulers of Mertwold for the crime of being imperfect. At much the same time, the Iron Warriors launched a devastating assault on the trench lines that had held so long against the orc menace of the Western Scrap City Cluster. Mertwold teetered on the brink of disaster. It was the Black Legion that finally pushed the false continent into a state of cataclysm. They had sent the flawless host to Mertwold not merely to indulge their taste for luxury, but also to shut down the automated defences that protected the war zone. The flawless host, having only relatively recently turned renegade from the Imperium, still utilised many of the same craft with which they had waged war in the name of the Emperor. Though these ships were now gilded, bejeweled and painted in an eye-watering array of hues, they still possessed the Adeptus Astartes idents that allowed them to bypass the cogitators of the automated defence networks. Approaching the most well-defended areas of Mertwold, the flawless host systematically destroyed every anti-air asset that these spires could bring to bear against an aerial assault. Upon receiving word that the False Continent's defence batteries were taken care of, the Black Legion descended upon Mertwold by the thousand. The Terminator Lord... Thorosgar Barefist bypassed the Dianos trench network and the Imperial Fist line entirely, launching a devastating attack on the defenders of Electros Hive and Jodrilov Hivestar. Zun Zhang, a skilled master of possession who had enjoyed Abaddon's favour for several months, pushed his own assault into the Emerald Strain while sending a contingent of Slaneshi demons to invade Electros Hive alongside Barefist. The Black Legion commanders had picked the sites of their assaults well, for there were countless miles of civilian territory between them and the Space Marines that defended the outskirts. By the time the Necropolis Hawks and Imperial Fists had closed in, the streets of Mertwold were running with blood. Storval Shimmering on the horizon of Hyperia, could be seen Storval, a land of volcanoes and energy farms. As the War of Nightmares got underway, its caldares began erupting with warp-infused firestorms. The volcanic continent of Storval once provided an endless stream of energy to the continents of Vigilus. The geothermic farms, built to harness even the most violent eruptions and turn it into raw power, were known for their searing temperatures and diligent burn-scarred workers. But amongst extreme environments grow extreme viewpoints and strange creeds. The fact that so many workers met their end in a bubbling vat or river of lava lent credence to those who believed that Storvel had a spirit of its own and that it fed on human sacrifice. With each geospasm that racked the false continent's fault lines and set off a chain of eruptions or overflows, more lives were claimed and the superstitious notion reinforced over again. In the third stage of the War of Beasts, the claims that there were fire devils frolicking in the flames were put down to hallucinations brought on by the Great Rift. It was almost impossible not to glimpse the celestial phenomenon of the Cisastrix Maledictum, especially at night, 
and there was copious evidence it could affect the sanity of those who witnessed it. Only when Harkin World Claimer's message boomed down from the ash clouds above Storvel did the idea that there might be some truth to the sightings of magical beasts existing in the fires gain any real traction. Within hours, the word that had only ever been whispered amongst the workers or scratched on the inside of the basement walls was spoken aloud. Diabolus. Storval was host to many pyroclastic cults that met in secret when their tech priest overlords were elsewhere. They all worshipped fire in one form or another, whether as an incarnation of the Omnissiah's wrath, a bringer of calm at the end of a hard day's work, or as a means to read their future. Some of these cults were corrupted by chaos, the largest known as the Sons of Vanadan, after its founder, who had given his life in battle against the strike force of Aldari, was famous for the prophetic insights it gleaned from the fire sprites dancing upon Mount Colosseed. Only when Abaddon's fleet entered low orbit did the cult reveal its true colours, rising up against the Skitari that sought to suppress it. Even as they were under fire from the Adeptus Mechanicus, the most psychically gifted of their worshippers completed a great ritual of fire and blood on the top of Festos Mound. They opened a warp gate, a split in reality that looked much like the Great Rift in Microcosm, and conjured a host of Zenshin demons that spilled down the flanks of the peak. The Psykers, rejoicing that their faith in the Dark Gods had been rewarded, saw dozens of Chaos cultists' uprisings flock to their banner. With the energies of the Great Rift running wild, Festos Mound, Omnissiah's Tread, and even Mount Colosseed began erupting with multicoloured flame and bolts of kaleidoscopic lightning, instead of the cherry-red lifeblood of the planet. If it were not for the quick decisions and callous efficiency of Fabricator Vosk, the false continent would likely have been consumed by empiric energies. There were dozens of tectonic frag drills across Storville. Many had fallen into the hands of the gene-stealer cultists, but many more were still under Skitari control. Vosk ordered them to be activated as one, and even sent targeted binaric overrides to enrage the machine spirits of those under enemy control. Many of these drills were positioned over geomantic nexus points. Instead of being carefully activated to bleed the earth of magma, as they did it whenever the volcanoes of Storville were on the verge of a critical eruption, they now burrowed into the planet's crust in a destructive frenzy. With every frag drill gnawing into the earth as one, the boiling undercurrents of magma flowed in great measure, filling the Vorskin canal network to maximum capacity and sending huge pulses of energy down the microfibers and cables that connected Storvel to the hive sprawls. The volcanoes boiled over, the rage of tortured tectonic plates spilling from their fiery throats. In a matter of hours, the demons and cultists that had claimed the uppermost caldaras of the volcanoes were crushed by tons of ash and pumice, nor consumed by pyroclastic energies. Even the massing demons of Zench were sent shrieking back to the war. Hundreds of thousands of workers and Skitari died along with them, and the industry of Storval was crippled. But for Vosk, it was a price well worth paying to deny the forces of chaos. Otak Hive Sprawl The central hive sprawl of Otak was once a thriving example of an imperial metropolis. After the opening of the Great Rift, 
was torn asunder. Its hat blocks, the site of constant battle between the agents of the Imperium, invading orcs, usurping gene-stealer cultists, and the chaos onslaught. The vast urban nation of Ottok Hivesprawl once had a great deal of influence over Vigilus. It harboured the five great reservoirs of Gregan, Misandrin, Ostevar, Trevig, and Agamemnus, known collectively as the Hollows. With the Sentinel world being so arid, Ottok's reservoirs were always in high demand. Water was not Ottok's only bounty either. It also housed a treasure trove of data pertaining to every aspect of the planet and its neighbours in the Vigilus system. In the Turingsbane data hives, there was a persistent rumour that insights into the fabled standard template constructs were hidden within the depths of those labyrinthine vaults. The Adeptus Mechanicus had long sought full access to that bounty of data, despite having signed the Pact of Fire and Steel that forbade them unaccompanied access to its secrets. Because of its rich resources, Artek had a disproportionately high concentration of the Adeptus Arbites, the judges, juries and executioners of Imperial society. Their law enforcement and precinct networks were further bolstered by the Adeptus Sororitas, a sign from Hyperia in the east. Together with the space wolves of Haldor Icepelt, it was the Sisters of Battle that bore the brunt of the intense fighting around Grigan Hollow. The Death Watch, specialists in the art of hunting Xenos, quarantined the Hollows after they were found to be tainted by the gene-stealer cultists that skulked in the dank tunnels beneath the fortified reservoirs. But many citizens drank from them, nonetheless, risking a bullet for just one drought of precious water whenever the garrison's back were turned. When Abaddon used the Eldritch technologies of the Void Claw to open a tiny singularity at one of Vigilus's Lagrange points, a zone equidistant between planet and moon, he disturbed the gravity of the world so much so that its water supplies were irrevocably drawn towards the Verulian Swirl. The hollows were drained in a single week, the water crawling up the walls of the reservoirs to flow towards the great dust wastes beyond the hive sprawl, like glittering snakes on some strange migration. Otek's people, who also felt that tug so strongly, it was a fight not to let themselves be pulled eastward, fought each other to scoop up the water from the rivulets that spread through the streets, filling canteens, turins, and empty Promethean barrels with as much aqua as they could salvage. The Militarum garrison, at a loss, could not stop the water making its slithering voyage towards the swirl, and so remained at their posts. Even with the stuff of life just waiting to be claimed in the streets, and cultist uprisings blossoming all over the hive sprawl, they knew better than to abandon their duty, for the commissars did not look kindly on such things. The citizens all but tore themselves apart over the departing resource, clawing at one another tooth and nail to claim the water for themselves. With the eyes of Otok's law enforcement elsewhere, the tech priests of Megaborealis and Storvel redoubled their efforts to claim the Turingsbane data hives for themselves. Thankfully for the Imperial war effort, they were successful, for what the tech priests found down there in the data slate tunnels was potent enough to change the face of the ravaged planet once and for all. Through diligent cross-referencing and acts of painstaking archaeolexicography, the tech priests of Stygies 8 
unearthed ancient records of the Citadel Vigilant, and more pertinently, construction data slates for the doomsday device known as the Void Claw. In their research on the Citadel Vigilant, the tech priests found iconographical links to the original incarnation of the First Legion. Fabricator Vosk himself sent a carefully encrypted message to the tech marines of the Dark Angels, keeping his information purely technical so as to avoid any questions as to its origin or ownership. In doing so, he gave the Dark Angels the keys they needed to bypass the Void Claw's defences, and, if needed, to destroy it. The Verulian Swirl A massive, swirling dust vortex, so vast it birthed lesser storms to ravage the wilderness around it, the Verulian Swirl was always something of an enigma to the populace of Vigilus. All citizens at least knew to stay away from that ever-whirling tempest. Not that the average person had the liberty to be able to stray far from their allotted task and hab block, for it was a potent presence in vigilant folklore, treated more as a baleful creature than a simple storm. To approach it was to run the risk of having one's skin, and flesh beneath stripped away by the fierce abrasions of hurtling particulate. It was rumoured, although few could confirm it, that the lands about were littered with bones, the scattered remnants of those too stupid or fatally curious to stay away. Even those orcs that braved its outskirts, careening around the perimeter as part of the speed-war daredevil races, learned to avoid the giant ochre-black walls of dust that formed the swirl proper. At the beginning of the War of Nightmares, none on the Vigilus Senate truly knew what caused the swirl's existence. Very few of their warriors had ventured inside its reaches to find out, and even fewer had returned. Some called the swirl a natural phenomenon, but that could not have been further from the truth. Over the course of the war for Vigilus, the swirl's secret was finally revealed. At the heart of that great storm stood the Citadel Vigilant, a monument built as much from the fabled mineral noctilith as it was obsidian and hypersteel. The lack of weathering upon its slick, black walls implied that the monstrous keep had been built in recent years, but in truth it had been constructed long before humanity had quested out into the stars on the Emperor's Great Crusade. There was said to be something alien about its appearance and a peculiar spire atop it, which housed a weapon with the potential to cause cataclysmic destruction, shimmered with energies that hurt the eye. The Citadel Vigilant had long been the stronghold for a coven of warrior mystics that thousands of years ago forsook the Adeptus Astartes in search of deeper truths. They were known as the Fallen, protected by the strange, temporal aegis of that place from the vagaries of time, they sought to unlock the secrets of the Citadel and the minerals in the planet's crust beneath, but were never truly able to confirm their suspicions that Noctilif was tied to the power of the Dark Gods. Some amongst the fallen of the Citadel Vigilant believed they could drive out the taint of corruption from the souls of the afflicted by chaining the victims to a slab of Noctilif charged to repel the energies of chaos for a year and a day. Others claim that the planet was vital to the future of the Imperium and that they had been called there to act as guardians for the final day of reckoning. The despoiler 
knowing full well the promise of the black stone deposits in the citadel, made planetfall under the auspices of Parley and even Alliance. Such was his personal charisma and the lure of his carefully considered words that the Fallen joined his side voluntarily, for they saw in Abaddon a chance to sever their brothers in the Dark Angels from the holy light of terror forevermore, and in doing so, forced them to embrace the bleak truths they had hidden for so long. The activation of the Void Claw saw the Verulian swirl turn from a massive whirling cyclone to a sucking vortex that drew up millions of tons of sand and detritus with every passing moment. Only the Citadel Vigilant itself remained unaffected, protected as it was by a force field of unprecedented size and strength that defied Imperial classification but which made the structure as immune to the Great Tempest as a mountain is to a light shower. During the war, battle was to rage under that Great Aegis, the combatants giving everything they had to settle a millennia-old grudge, and in doing so, determine whether the planet was to survive or to be consumed. A wolf at the door. In the early stages of the War of Nightmares, Wolf Lord Crom Dragongaze's great company arrived in force above Vigilus. The Fenrisian battle barges smashed a path through the outer ring of orc scrap hogs, but the fierce eye was drawn to the largest greenskin vessel in range, the immense rocket cruiser-marked World Smasher. Seeking to announce his presence on the embattled world with a fitting act of glory, the Wolf Lord and his Rhyme Guard teleported aboard the ship. The Space Wolves cut a bloody path through the Orc mechs that controlled the World Smasher's immense rocket arrays. And the Wolf Guard, Wolfric Stormsmite, placed melter bombs on key points along the cruiser's sprawling ammunition yards. While Dragon Gaze sought out and beheaded the big mech captain with a swing of his frost axe, the Space Wolves exfiltrated moments before a chain reaction demolished the upper decks of the World Smasher, sending it into a spiralling death dive into the wastes of Vigilus near the Verulian Swirl. The doomed ship struck like a cyclonic warhead, destroying several warbands of orc speed freaks and a number of the Greenskin's crude scrap forts on the outskirts of Hurricane Wreck. Lord Dragongaze considered this a fitting spectacle with which to herald his arrival on Vigilus. Upon reporting to the Vigilus Senate, Wolf Lord Crom immediately clashed with Lord Marnius Calgar, who was then organising the defence of Vigilus from his command centre within the Aquilarian Palace. The chapter master vetoed the fierce eyes' demands for an aggressive assault upon the remains of Hurricane Wreck, for the Wolf Lord was keen to finish what he had started, and claim a significant victory for his great company in the process. The heated argument between the two space marines grew bitter, but was averted when news arrived of an orc incursion into the temple districts of Hyperia. The fierce eye set off at once to defeat this new threat, much to Kalgar's relief. Kalex Bane Kalex Bane was once thought of as the salvation of the planet, for in its glaciers and ice wastes were countless tons of water waiting to be thawed and purified for the consumption of the populace. But that endless promise was claimed only by the rich. Once its vast macro craters had been properly treated to work as quarries and a freight infrastructure put in place to carry that bounty, mined in vast cuboid structures, 
To those who could pay the right price, the icy realm provided water only to the upper echelons of Vigilus. That privilege was to change over the course of the War of Beasts and again with the coming of chaos. Deep in the western reaches of the icy wilderness was an area designated Quarantine Cryofurnace by the Imperial authorities, for those who strayed within its perimeter did not come back out. For a while, it was believed that the cause was the giant ice mantises that hunted in the blizzards. These predatory creatures were lethal indeed, and caused a great many deaths amongst the Skatari and cybernetic quarrymen that hewed their Aquarius fortune from the glaciers. But it was in truth the Drakari, pitiless Eldari raiders, that preyed on isolated groups and took them back to the twisted city of Kamora, that were responsible for the most losses. At the heart of the quarantine, Cryofurnace was a webway portal, elegant and slender in the fashion of Eldari architecture. When activated by one with the correct arcane knowledge, it opened a shimmering gateway that led to the labyrinthine dimension, allowing raiders to cross vast gulfs of space to reach Vigilus undetected. It was not only the Jakari that knew of this portal's existence. The Thousand Sons, that traitor legion whose tragic fall from grace rendered them armoured spirits led by inhuman sorcerers, had delved deep into the mysteries of the webway. Though they possessed only a fraction of the Aldari's mastery, they had found a route to Vigilus, their progress guided by their strange god, Zench. As Abaddon's invasion got underway, the Thousand Suns began to emerge from the webway portal by the Hundred. The off-white tundra of the Dirthland permafrost was compacted by the crump of power-armoured feet marching in unison. As the unfeeling automatons strode through the ice mantis drifts, their inferno bolters ripping apart any indigenous predators foolish enough to approach. The Drakari had long seen Kallax Bane as their rightful territory, and the webway gate was a vital means of bringing reinforcements to Vigilus that they were not prepared to sacrifice. As such, they engaged the Thousand Suns in a series of hit-and-run strikes. They rode the blizzards, screaming out of the white nothingness to slice and stab at the rubriquet and their sorcerous masters. Yet these battles did not go well for them, for what is crippling pain to one whose mortal remains are little more than dust sealed in a suit of armour. Only when the Drakari retreated to the Quixotine Loop did they find the key to their nemesis' defeat. Those strange islands of ice, seemingly featureless yet guarded by an array of force fields and moats disproportionate to their military value, hid a strange secret. The Drakari, able to bypass the protective barriers with a subsidiary webway portal, found a complex mechanism the size of a hab block that their foremost mind, Archon Kivir, the inscrutable, concluded was a primitive but effective terraforming node. Within a few hours, the Archon had revived the machine and turned it to its most extreme setting. The Drakari did not know it, but the ancient device had been the invention of Kalak himself, the first explorator to attempt to mine the continent for water. It had been his demise, for its terraforming technology had proved all too effective, the pioneer freezing to death in the glacial wilderness. For the Drakari, however, it worked with startling efficiency. The terraforming engines chugged and chunted as they worked their way back to full capacity, and, gradually at first, then with startling speed, the Arctic wilderness of Kallax Bane began to grow colder still. 
Its borders expanded, fingers of ice forming across the wastelands in thin sheets. In the heartlands of Calix Bane, the temperature dropped so severely that the blizzards formed thick snowdrifts, then hard prisons of ice. The master stroke proved far more effective against the Thousand Suns than any number of toxins or artfully delivered sword cuts. For the silent phalanxes of Rubrique that had taken control of the icy continent found themselves slowing to a crawl, stopping altogether, then becoming completely inert, frozen in place and in some places trapped in a swiftly forming glacier. The sorcerers of the Thousand Suns were forced to abandon their retinues and hunted by gleeful Drakari raiding parties flee back through the webway portal. Neo Vellum Neo Vellum was once an exemplary facility dedicated to the arts of the Scriptorum and the Quell Servitor, a world of gas storms and acid swamps dotted with armoured, hermetically sealed population centres. It formed the information hub for Vigilus. Its vantage point in the celestial vault gave it independence and allowed the satellite a degree of omniscience over the activities on the planet below. Unfortunately, over the course of the War of Nightmares, the old saying, Neo Vellum sees all, was to be proven decidedly false. Neo Vellum's information engine, an immense thing of cogs, pneumatic tubes and orreries, could dispatch a message tube to a given site on the planet below with a relatively high degree of accuracy. Yet when the Great Rift opened the skies, its calculations went badly awry, and the psyche choir of Neo Vellum's massive torus-shaped corallium was plagued with horrible episodes of insanity. To make matters worse, during the War of Beasts, the pauper princes sent two pure strain gene-stealers to the Administratum Moon. Hiding amongst the toiling masses, each brood established its own gene-sect, while the scribes of Neo Vellum, taking solace in their scroll-work, were blind to the corruption unfolding in their midst. A strike clade of Scutari, requisitioned by Inquisitor Garrulus of the Order Xenos, purged many of the life-forms, but many more escaped. The gradual doom the cultists represented was superseded when the gravatic anomaly opened by the Void Claw pulled the planet from its orbit. The acid swamps boiled, the emerald gas storms intensified, and the bouts of madness grew more frequent as the world was drawn ever closer to the tiny singularity that was the Verulian anomaly. Even for the most cybernetically augmented of the planet's workers, the sense of impending doom could be felt deep in every gut. Dire whispers led to panic, and then, despite the heavy-handed oppression of the Scriptorum masters, to open rioting, with the surviving gene-stealer cultists adding to the furore. The Scriptorums of Neo Vellum were soon aflame. The Forces of Chaos The Chaos hosts that invaded Vigilus were disparate and struck at every hive sprawl and island in a different fashion. Each traitor legion and renegade chapter had its own agenda, its own enemies it yearned to destroy. The only uniting factor was the ruthless efficiency with which they went about their murderous work. In theory, with the looming presence and grand strategy of the War Master to unite them, the forces of chaos should have proved greater than the sum of their parts, but where the Imperial armies were tightly marshaled and guided by a council of respected war leaders, the twisted scions of the Dark Gods were largely left to their own devices. Abaddon had greater designs than 
acting as a disciplinarian to keep his unruly seconds in line. That would have been such a Sisyphean task that even to attempt it would have precluded any personal ambition or long-term plan. Instead, the Warmaster used his forces as agents of disruption, anarchy and despair, allowing them to spread the fires of war as they wished. Ultimately, Abaddon considered the frontline engagements, executions and intricacies of the Long War to be a distraction. His works and those of the demon Primarchs had torn Imperial space in half. He fully intended to make good on the promise of damnation he had ridden across the skies of the galaxy. And to do so, he would need to bathe Vigilus in such intense madness that its defenders had to fight on all fronts at all times. Only then could he pursue his greater agenda without fear of a coherent counterattack. The planet's inherent ability to repel chaos had made its secret irresistible to the Adeptus Mechanicus, just as it had made it a priority target for the forces of the Dark Gods who sought to destroy it. It was a cruel truth for all their painstaking analysis the tech priests of Styges had less insight into the Noctilif substance than the Chaos Warlords under Abaddon the Despoiler. Perhaps if the Lords of Mega Borealis had better cooperation with the Priesthood of Mars, and Archmagus Dominus Call in particular, they may have made better use of the bounty they had mined so fastidiously. The Blackstone, taken from the planet's crust, had been charged by some arcane force to have an anti-empiric resonance, a fact that the sorceress cabals advising Abaddon had learned from afar, using scrying rituals and demonic bargains. As to how this worked, none amongst either camp knew. Fabricator Vosk of Megaborealis had theorized it was Xenos' hands that had fashioned the stuff into strange spear-like shapes and aligned it in the fluid-filled bubbles of the deep geological strata. For he had heard of no such phenomenon on any other world catalogued by his peers. Those who had examined those linear mineral deposits closely had found evidence of mechanical processes so advanced no human artisan could have replicated them. The Blackstone was rife with channels and holes that wound with labyrinthine complexity, each so regular it was as if they had been machined by some technological marvel. The micro-servitors sent into the holes to examine the maze of passages did not come out again. The Adeptus Mechanicus did not allow their lack of understanding to hinder their progress in sequestering the material, for that was not their way. When Abaddon learned from Hark and Worldclaimer that the tech priests had gathered the material and stored it in their most well-defended silos, he laughed long and loud, for unwittingly they had done much of the work for him. The planet's bounty was no longer buried deep in its crust. The excavation of the Blackstone, something that Abaddon had feared may have taken several decades and hundreds of thousands of slaves to achieve, had already been done for him. The Despoiler had learned the value of Blackstone long ago, in the distant past of his kingship. Indeed, many of the Black Crusades had revolved around its destruction. Whenever Abaddon located Noctilif structures that had been charged to hold back the forces of chaos, he spared no effort to shatter them, for in doing so he severely weakened the metaphysical barrier between real space and the warp. He had achieved this feat on a string of worlds across the Imperium, the Eldritch Needles of Nemesis Tessaria, the gates of the Cromarch Citadel, 
the black obelisk of Mono Archive. Even the mysterious pylons of Cadia had been toppled when Abaddon had thrown every weapon at his disposal into the planet's destruction. There was a pattern to these invasions. From a certain vantage point, they linked up to form a jagged diagonal line across the galaxy. The line that had split open and given rise to the Great Rift. The Sentinel world of Vigilus lay on that same galactic fault line, and it was the priority of the forces of chaos to destroy it. On Vigilus, Abaddon's plan was to obliterate the structures that protected the planet in order to expand the Great Rift and to close one of the very few channels that allowed passage across its roiling mass. Over the course of the Gothic War, the Warmaster sorcerers had found a way to turn Blackstone from its natural state of neutral resonance, where it neither attracted nor repelled chaos, to an alignment where it harnessed and stored the energies of the warp. This technique required costly and dangerous rituals involving human sacrifice, uh, percussive arithmical impacts and the inscription of dark runes upon the Blackstone's surface. The cost in lives of these sorcerous processes was gladly paid by the Black Legion. Their ultimate agenda was to ensure the galaxy drowned in a rising tide of chaos, and if the Neckman Gauntlet were to be closed forever, the Imperium Nihilus would be brought a great deal closer to that dark fate. With war raging across Vigilus, there was no time for Abaddon sorcerers to recover the deposits the Adeptus Mechanicus had unearthed, let alone perform the rituals that would turn them to the cause of chaos, so he opted to destroy the precious resource instead, an act that would still devastate the Imperium. He ordered his shock troops in the form of entire armies of demon engines to assault the Blackstone silos in order to disable the force fields that protected them. Then, with that Aegis down, his warships levelled an orbital bombardment to blast the Blackstone to flinders of rock, so small and so scattered they could no longer hold back the Great Rift with their metaphysical power. Even as Vigilus was assailed, the other half of Abaddon's dual strike was unfolding in the reaches of the Imperium Sanctus. He believed that whatever ancient order had placed the Blackstone Spears within Vigilus's crust had deliberately created the Neckmund Gauntlet, and that similar, if not identical, deposits would be found in the earth of a twin planet on the other side of that channel. That planet was Sangua Terra. By taking war to these sites, and by destroying the Blackstone Spears that kept them sacrosanct, he would collapse the Neckman Gauntlet entire. This was Abaddon's true intent, and upon Vigilus and Sangua Terra alike, every other slaughter, massacre, and betrayal was merely a distraction. Forces of the Black Legion The Black Legionnaires fought as a series of warbands, each centred around a charismatic leader figure. In turn, these dark champions formed a greater host that answered to Abaddon himself. Their attacks were so swift and vicious that few outside the Vigilus Senate had time to consider the strategy uniting them. Long millennia as the master of the Black Crusades had taught Abaddon that the legions of chaos were not fine instruments to be wielded as a surgeon wields a knife, not even the Black Legion, his own brethren, whom he had brought back from the brink of disaster and slowly built into a force that could threaten the galaxy entire, could fully be trusted to obey his will when their first for carnage took hold. These forces were wrecking balls, sledgehammers and jagged blades aimed at the throat. 
but what they lacked in subtlety, they more than made up for in the destruction they brought down upon their foes. As such, where the actions of his forces led to resources being wasted or misused, or schisms between allies developing, the War Master reacted with little more than a curled lip. Only the direst infractions did he punish, and even then through an intermediary. Those that worked against Abaddon or deliberately flouted his rule were visited by his enforcers. These came in the form of the Bringers of Despair, his veteran Terminator bodyguard, the Gordar Ban, a master of executions who had risen high in the War Master's favour on the killing fields of the tundra planet Troska. When Abaddon commanded that one of his lesser warlords be killed, it was often the axe of Gordar Ban who took that head. The snowdrifts of Asavansus had been stained with the lifeblood of three such champions marked for death. The tally he claimed amongst the officer cadres of the Truscan snowhounds was five times that number, his axe parting heads from necks with expert precision. Each of the headman's attacks on Vigilus was brief and terrifying, teleporting from the sorcerous octograms aboard the vengeful spirit Gordar and a band of the bringers of despair would arrive in a flash of dark light before their mark. The Terminators would instantly blast away the guardians of the intended victim with combi bolters and reaper autocannons, while Gordar strode forward, axe raised. There was no escaping such a fate once it had been set. Gordar Ban had ripped out his own eye in a lengthy and painful chaos ritual, exchanging it in a demonic bargain for limited warp sight. By covering his remaining eye, he could see his intended quarry across time and space as a flicker of red light, and he could hunt the offender out, no matter how well concealed they thought themselves to be. When Ban's inescapable axe descended, a head would roll, and Abaddon's reign of fear would be strengthened all the more. Ban was sent against many Imperial captains and commanders over the course of the War of Nightmares, though Marnius Kalgar was not one of them. Kalgar was a formidable opponent, and Abaddon did not intend to throw away the life of his promising champion on such an errand. More than that, he intended to claim the head of the Lord Macrag himself, and finally settle their ancient rivalry. That resolution was to lead to a climatic duel, and ultimately decide the fate of the planet. There were hundreds of war leaders in the War Master's inner circle, each with his own priorities and ambitions. Amongst them was one who, above all others, sought to disrupt, divide, and destroy all semblance of ordered thought. He was the Archlord Discordant, known in the Black Legion as Vex Mechanator. It was his particular ability to bring chaos to the foe that made him the heir to Abaddon's throne. None knew the true name of Vex Mechanator. Much like a demon, he kept it secret so that none could have true power over him. Instead, he was named for his practices. To everyone he encountered, he brought strife, regardless of their allegiance. Even to approach him was to feel vexation, confusion and dismay. He was like a living embodiment of chaos, feeding on the bitter divisions he sowed amongst friends and foes alike. And in his machinations... He was as much a parasite as the giant scuttling hellstalker he rode to war. Nothing was immune to his corrupting aura. 
Even machine spirits turned rogue in his presence, shrieking in scrap code as their host engines and cogitators spat cascades of blood-red sparks. Aside from Abaddon himself, it was difficult to find an agent of chaos that was more roundly hated. As the Archlord Discordant rode to war, hard-won alliances collapsed around him in suspicion and paranoia. Orders went unheard or unheeded, and tightly bound battle plans unraveled into discord. The Warriors of Chaos were vicious and self-centered enough to fight on as individuals. Indeed, for the World Eaters, he fought alongside at Louvrin Island. That was already their way of life. But those who thrived on discipline quickly came unstuck. When Vex Mechanitor led a charge of juggernaut riding bloodletters and hulking demon engines at the Zemetria Breach, the Cadians that stood against them could not focus their fire as they had been trained, and in their desperation fired at will. They wounded dozens of the foe, but spread their fire too thinly and failed to put them down. They paid for that mistake with their lives, trampled into the arid wastes by brass-shod hooves. Behind the battle lines, Mechanator's chaotic aura unbound those who would unite against Abaddon. A conspiracy to dethrone the War Master, painstakingly drawn up by the treasonous demon prince Shamya Yagar Thrash, ended with the war leaders turning against one another shortly after Vex Mechanator joined their ranks as a double agent. Not one of the conspirators survived the ensuing arguments. The Archlord Discordant rode out of the fray alone, covered in gore and even higher in the War Master's favour. During the War for Vigilus, the Belles Corona war beasts were set upon the fortress networks of Hyperia. Giant lumbering cyborgs, each possessed of a driving obsession for a particular form of killing, these grotesque warriors were famously unruly, but they had learned to fear Abaddon's displeasure. The hulking mutilator, known as the King of Swords, had once defied Abaddon until he had been cut in two with a single blow from Drachnean. Since then, the war beasts had recognized the master of the Black Legion as their rightful leader. The cults of destruction took great pleasure in profaning the holy ground of Hyperia with their presence. So redolent with chaos were these creatures that their footsteps left steaming, discolored marks on the sacred stones. When the obliterators at the fore opened fire with their profusion of cannons and heavy weapons, even the statue-braced bulwarks that guarded the Ring of Nothingness were torn down, the garrisons on their ramparts tumbling with them. Counterattacks launched by the Adeptus Sororitas kept the obliterators pinned, and where their exorcist missile tanks were brought to bear, even failed them. But each time the Sisters of Battle closed within range to bring their holy trinity of Bolter, Melter and Flamer to bear, the mutilators that thudded alongside their gun-cyborg brethren would break into a lumbering run to hit the Imperial lines with battering ram force. Again and again, the sisters gave ground, for to match that living wall of blades was to go to a premature grave. It was only when the Cult of Destruction was goaded out into Phantos Bridge that the Adeptus Sororitas were able to deal a lasting blow, collapsing the causeway with carefully placed munitions and sending a dozen of the flesh-metal monstrosities tumbling into the darkness below. The scrap cities of the Orcs were at first all but ignored by the Black Legion's invasion, 
Only when the Speed Lord Supreme, Cruel Daka, took the fight to the brazen beasts in Megaborealis did Abaddon divert resources to make a punitive strike. He knew in his heart of hearts that the orcs were simply too bellicose a threat to be ignored, and that they respected only brute strength. Luckily, that was something the Black Legion and their allies possessed in great measure. The chaos forces that had invaded Vigilus boasted not only heretic Astartes, but also titan legions of imperial legend. The hive sprawl of Otic, Dontoria and Megaborealis had proven so riddled with tunnels, mines and underhives that a god machine could easily collapse an entire section of road with its weight, so they did not stray far into the cities. Instead, the Titan Legions bombarded the cities from afar with their long-range cannons. After cruel Dacker's attack, these metal giants turned from their assigned sprawls and marched out into the wastes to do battle with the greenskin hordes Stompers, Gorkonauts, Morkonauts, and Gargants. A tanker spill, Drogzot's crater, and Fort Dacker, a war of metal monstrosities broke out. The battle raging amongst the looted hulks of the free blade Imperial Knights that had made their ill-fated assault during the War of Beasts. This time, the orcs were outmatched, for the skill, savagery and raw firepower of the Chaos Titans that faced them saw free greenskin war effigies torn apart for every god machine they brought down. Even at close range, the Chaos Titans excelled, ripping the orc machines asunder with coiling tentacles and long-taloned claws that punched, thrust and gouged at the heads of their adversaries. The battle dragged on for days. What the orcs lacked in quality they made up for in quantity and aggression alike. The clash was immensely costly for both sides, but prevented the orcs from gaining the momentum they needed to launch a full war. In this, it allowed the main body of the Black Legion's invaders to concentrate on tearing apart the Imperium's armies. Forces of the Alpha Legion The Alpha Legion warbands on Vigilus were provided with an open mandate by Abaddon. Wreak whatever havoc they pleased, provided it destabilized the Imperial military infrastructure. This was a war that perfectly suited the clandestine compulsions of this most devious and divisive of traitor legions. To date, Imperial historians have been unable to accurately assess the number of Alpha Legionaries that operated on Vigilus. There is no way of determining the true damage they caused, for many records pertaining to the heretics' operations were mysteriously corrupted or erased. Others were actively booby-trapped, data geists savaging the auto-savants tasked with these records' recovery. It has been summarized, however, that the Alpha Legion was behind a string of uprisings by cells of chaos cultists throughout Hyperia. Elements of the Cadian 92nd and the 187th Thanebreakers suffered heavy casualties during a guerrilla offensive by fanatical heretic elements. Fragmentary reports persist of half-seen giants in blue-green power armor who supported the cultists' onslaught but not a single loyalist eyewitness survived to corroborate these tales. The Trinity Hives that towered over Hyperia Hive Sprawl were crucial distribution centers for the Aqua Sanctus that sustained its populace. Efforts by elements within the Adeptus Ministorum 
had seen that precious resource continue to flow down to workers labouring in Hyperia's munitions manufactorums. Aquasanctus was the divine fuel powering the workforce, who, in turn, fed the holy armaments of the Imperial defenders. Such was the rationale of the charitable mission known as the Benevolent Hand. This collection of Ministorum priests, fratres militia, and battle sisters from the Order of Our Martyred Lady worked tirelessly, often in perilous conditions and with no official logistical support, to supply those who would otherwise have been ignored by self-interested Munitorum clerks. It is unclear whether the Benevolent Hand were infiltrated by Alpha Legion operatives or were simply fed misinformation to propel them into damnation. A sudden shift in activities indicated the point at which Ministorum volunteers grew suspicious of the source of the Aquis Sanctus coming into Hive Spire Magentine. It can be inferred from recovered fragments of communiques that the Benevolent Hand became convinced that, as a result of heretical sabotage, the water they were distributing bore a corrupting taint. After their warnings to the Munitorum fell upon deaf ears, the Benevolent Hand acted directly. They distributed weapons amongst their flock, attempting to halt and forcibly inspect a large shipment of water coming through Hub K-876 from outside Hyperia. Instead of heretical saboteurs, however, the Benevolent Hand found themselves faced by several platoons of Cadian 92nd Heavy Infantry, who, thanks to an now untraceable tip-off, were expecting malicious interference from disguised heretical elements attempting to corrupt the water supply. Post-action analysis shows that the first shot, which turned a tense standoff into a slaughter, was fired not by a representative of either Imperial faction, but by a concealed third party with a bolt-caliber sniper weapon concealed in the gantries above Hub K-876. This sparked a brutal firefight that saw the Benevolent Hand annihilated. The KDM platoon savaged and the entire Aquas Sanctus shipment ruined. At a stroke, the water supply to the Magentine munitions workers was cut off, triggering an estimated 24% drop in material output over the coming weeks. Furthermore, it cannot be a coincidence that those same Cadian platoons, weakened by the catastrophe at Hub K-876, proved unable to hold back a string of raids upon Hive Spire Megantine by unidentified heretic Astartes kill teams in the days that followed. Forces of the Night Lords Masters of Psychological Warfare The Night Lords had done a great deal to destabilise the planet in the third phase of the War of Beasts. When they indulged in open battle, however, they found themselves matched against a foe like no other and brought to the brink of disgrace. The Night Lords upon Vigilus were few, for the greater portion of their legion was involved in an escalating war with the Asuriani, but they made a heavy impact nonetheless. The heretics initially invaded Dirkton Hivesprawl, hoping for easy prey, but soon found Xenos in the shadows. The Night Lords had taken the tumbled, crime-ridden sprawl as the perfect environment for their particular brand of warfare, and perhaps even a recruiting ground for new blood, for the Sons of Kurs had long filled their ranks with hardened criminals. Their raptor hosts gleefully hung the corpses of their prey from the half-finished spires of Ashenid Nonhive as their strike forces prowled the lower levels. 
They took note of those gangs and criminal overlords that put up a good fight and spared those that showed the most promise. The enterprise was profitable at first, as well as being gratifying in terms of raw violence and terror. The Night Lords captured many slaves and selected no few criminal prodigies to bolster their own ranks. Then, the indigenous gene-stealer cults that had lurked beneath Dirkden's surface for generations rose up against the Night Lords' invaders. Though the cultists had expended a vast proportion of their strength overtaking the Hivesprawl continent, they infested every stratum of Dirkdenite society and had multiplied exponentially in the darkness. No matter how many the heretic Astartes killed, there seemed always to be more. They proved far better armed and more tenacious than the Imperial troops that the Night Lords had encountered in the skeletal convoys fleeing the Hivesprawl, and they carried heavy industrial weaponry and exhibited strange xeno-mutations as lethal as any chainsword. For a time, the Night Lords slew every breed of hybrid that dared challenge them, but even they were not indefatigable. Eventually, the hunters found that they had become the hunted. Pure strain gene-stealers burst out from smuggling cavities within false walls. Goliath rock grinders drove recklessly into the flanks of rhino transport convoys and street-level brood brother weapons teams took pot shots at the raptors, haunting the unfinished spires. Each strike ended in a vicious melee as the heretic Astartes fought back to back to slay their assailants with chainswords and lightning-reeved claws. But whenever the cultists were outmatched, they melted away into the shadows as if at some unseen signal. Ultimately, the Night Lords were forced to concede the continent, making off with what gains they could secure. The heretics chose their targets with greater care on the eastern borders of Hyperia, waging a hit-and-run war against a foe they knew how to fight from long experience, the Adeptus Astartes. Engaging the Dark Angels of the Fourth Company, they launched a series of smaller skirmishes, but did so with a far greater degree of fury, for their pride had been besmirched by the events in Dirkton, and their bitter ire mingled with Eon's old hatred. This was a war for survival, for, after their failure in Dirkton, the Night Lords could not report back to Abaddon without news of victory in the wider war. The losses they had sustained in Dirkton were almost untenable. The raw recruits they had picked out from the populace were a long way from becoming true space marines, and the spoils of war had been few and far between. So the Night Lords fought with cunning and stealth instead of the dark, predatory glee with which they had begun the campaign. Their kill team struck hard from the blackest alleyways, wherever the Dark Angels gathered, taking down one or two warriors before staging a fighting retreat and repeating the tactic elsewhere. It was an effective mode of warfare, and it won the Night Lords a string of minor but significant victories. Only when the airborne elements of the Ravenwing tracked and killed Varus Hakotus, the Chaos Lord coordinating the ambushing strikes, did the Dark Angels manage to fight the Night Lords on their own terms. It was towards the end of the War of Nightmares that Praxis Imperialis rose to power amongst the ranks of the Night Lords. The skull-masked Master of Possession had been Varus Harkotus's advisor for years, but the two generally exhibited a cold and seething hatred for one another. Though few amongst the Night Lords knew it, it was Praxis who had set the fires in the formerly quiet Vendor and Maze, Hakotus's base of operations, 
The leaping flames alerted the Ravenwing to the commander's presence and, after a costly skirmish where land speeders duelled with jump-pack-equipped night lords in a tightly-packed street, both Hakotus and the Ravenwing lieutenant, Pinius, lay dead. Praxis wasted no time, summoning a flock of iridescent sky rays and several packs of warp-fire-hurling flamers. He corralled the land speeders of the Ravenwing by setting the skies afire. Then, taking an impossible risk, by physically touching the noctilift crown he had raised at the heart of the maze, Praxis blasted the agile craft from the sky with a storm of livid purple lightning. When elements from the third and fourth companies of the Dark Angels closed in, they were met by overlapping fields of bolterfire. The Night Lords had learned every nook and crevice of their lair well. Five Dark Angels died for every Night Lord that fell that day a ratio that pleased Abaddon enough to overlook the disastrous attack upon Dirkden. The Night Lords withdrew from the front lines after their victory, though they maintained a presence throughout the rest of the war. Forces of the Word-Bearers Upon making Planetfall, the Word-Bearers applied every bit of their dark cunning and single-minded commitment to the execution of the Warmaster's grand plan. While the Black Legion were destroying the material keeping the Great Rift at bay, the word-bearers were raising structures to attract it. Abaddon tasked the word-bearers with a vital part of his strategy, to seed the planet with the ring-like structures known as Noctilith Crowns. The despoilers, grudging respect for the word-bearers and their commitment to the downfall of the Imperium, was made clear when he took the leaders of their legion into his confidence. Amongst them were the nine Chaos Lords and Dark Apostles known as the Coven Triplicatus, on his rune-circled artificer deck, Abaddon showed them dozens of Noctilith crowns and explained the reasons behind their creation. It was a plan of such impressive ambition and devotion that the Coven Triplicatus knelt before him, offering their maces and accursed Crozariuses to him as knights would offer their swords to their liege. It was no easy feat to raise the Noctilith crowns, even to touch the great... Torodial constructions was to risk death by psychic overload, but like their Primarch Lorgar before them, the war leaders of the Wordbearers are consummate demagogues, dark preachers and charismatic leaders, and they have never been short of cultist devotees, ready to give their lives to a cause. By raising slave gangs, each several hundred strong, the Wordbearers hauled the chaos-attracting structures into place and had them hammered into the planet's crust. Thousands perished, but it was a sacrifice the word-bearers made without a second thought. Those slaves whose latent supernatural ability blossomed into full psychic manifestations were dragged away and psycho-conditioned by the Legion's sorcerers and masters of possession. The most stable of these vassal psychers were given prominent Imperial targets, that they were to get close to before the implanted conditioning of their masters spurred their tortured minds into a devastating psychic overload. Others were chained together and put under great duress until their communal agony caused them to rip themselves apart with wild psychic energy, and in doing so, form a gate through which the demonic allies of the word-bearers could enter real space. Wherever such a sight came to be, Another Noctilith crown was raised, attracting yet more demons to the planet's surface. It was a shockingly effective tactic, and with the word-bearers fighting as a well-coordinated strike force in each site's defence, 
It provided a major source of reinforcement for Abaddon's war effort. Only three of the numerous Noctilith crowns that Abaddon had entrusted to the wordbearers remained on the vengeful spirit's artificer deck at the time of its emergency translation into the Empyrean. Had they too been raised, it is quite possible the entire planet would have been swallowed by the warp. Forces of the Iron Warriors The Iron Warriors wage war with a cold and bitter hatred. On Vigilus, each callous strike was well planned and driven home with the expertise of a master artisan. They broke apart the most heavily defended of the planet's integral sites at Mertwold, allowing the wider forces of chaos to flood inside. The warsmith, Karak, began his campaign upon Vigilus by remotely scrying the fortifications of the Imperial defences. He and his fellow warsmiths took extensive images from low orbit and amassed data through the use of corrupted servo skulls released onto the planet below. By the time Harkon World Claimer's challenge rang out, the Iron Warriors were well prepared. Thousands of Picts' captures had already been relayed back to the bridge of their flagship, the Port Cullis. However, upon sighting the vibrant heraldic yellow of their long-term enemies, the Imperial Fists, the Iron Warriors altered their intended campaign. Though their invasion was designed to assail multiple fronts, the better to crack the defences of the planet wide open, it soon turned into a singular assault upon the defences of Mertwold's eastern edge. The stage was set for a clash that would see no quarter asked nor given. Though the War Master of Chaos charged the Iron Warriors with the destruction of Vigilus's defence networks, they greeted the order with indifference, even scorn. The prosecution of sieges was their art, and they would practice it no matter the greater plan. Their first act was to attack an unremarkable fringe of each hive sprawl, aiming for those areas that were too poor or strategically insignificant to be well defended. Their warpsmiths then polluted the bastion force field network that ran around them with a potent machine plague. Were it not for the semi-psychic nature of the bastion fields, the plague would have struggled against the inbuilt fail-safes installed by the Adeptus Mechanicus, but there was a hostile sentence to the scrap code entity that was introduced. With the force fields already glitching and damaged due to the coming of the Great Rift, the machine plague thrived. Indeed, it multiplied by feasting on the empiric components of each node. By leaping through the psychic electric fields from one generator to another, it spread with horrible rapidity. By the second stage of the War of Nightmares, a full two-thirds of the force field generators were functionally useless. The Imperial defenders were disastrously unprepared for this new development. On the outskirts of Mertwold, those armies that had left the trenches relying on the bastion networks to guard their flanks found out the hard way that the shield generators had been compromised. Lord Deonus's suspicions as to their efficacy had been confirmed, yet even his traditional defences were found wanting. The Iron Warriors, using their preferred vector of mechanised assault, drove home a series of attacks that blitzed through the trench networks with humbling ease. Scores of Iron Warriors' kill teams had been dispatched to Mega Borealis early in the war, their aim to secure the mighty tectonic frag drills there. These were brought to the trenches whenever a bunker network proved unbreachable and used to create localised earthquakes that cracked fissures through shell-strewn ground and fortification alike. Into every split in the Imperial defences, the Iron Warriors pushed home another wedge attack that widened hairline breaches into yawning gaps. A fierce, grinding war began 
between the space marines of Dawn's heritage and the traitors of Perturabe's ancient order. In sheer violence, savagery and obstinate refusal to yield, it was reminiscent of the legendary Iron Cage. Ultimately, Captain Fane's loyalist forces, having been battered by the orcs of the Western Scrap City Cluster, and then attacked head-on by their most hated nemesis, had not the manpower to hold the line. The Imperial Fists were forced to withdraw to Hyperia, conceding Mertwold to the Iron Warriors and the Flawless Host. Renegade Astartes The heretic Astartes upon Vigilus numbered in the tens of thousands. Given the fact that they were equal of the Space Marines, they once called brothers, that was more than enough to conquer a planet. Much of that number was made up of renegades, each turncoat chapter a vicious bane in its own right. The space marines that fell to chaos after the tumultuous time of the Horus Heresy are amongst the most cunning of the heretic Astartes, and in the business of war each is worth a hundred mortal men. Some are veterans of unending battle against the false emperor and his works, heretics that have spent long and blood-soaked centuries tearing down the empire they once strove to protect. Others are more recent converts to the causes of the Dark Gods, their hatred of the Imperium burning bright as they rejoice in the breaking of the bonds that once trammeled every aspect of their existence. These renegade chapters were considered a powerful asset in the war hosts of the Black Crusades, and to the people of Vigilus and its Astra Militarum defenders, they were feared just as much as their traitor predecessors. Each renegade chapter brought with it its own unique strategic specialities, chaotic boons and potent material, and to underestimate them was to invite a painful death. Twelve renegade chapters fought as part of the Vigilus invasion, each sworn to Avedon's cause. Whether through notions of fealty, common cause or opportunism, each of them took for the fight to the hive sprawls with abandon. For the most part, they did so with lightning raids and swift strikes, the doctrines they had practiced as loyalist chapters. Now they brought the very skills imparted to them by the Imperium to bear against their former comrades. The Flawless Host The Flawless Host saw the self-important nobility of Mertwold, much as a snake sees a warren of mice. They descended from their magnificent starships to parade amongst the preening aristocrats of that false continent, at first striving with all the pomp of some neighbouring monarch sent to dispense largesse. As soon as the first shot was fired upon them, they turned into furies, screeching their hatred as they slaughtered household guards and elite Militarum Tempestus escorts by the hundred. When the Iron Warriors finally drove their Imperial Fist nemesis from the trench lines and took control of the hives, they found only corpses in the richest zones. At the heart of each such region, they encountered the Flawless Host, availing themselves of Mertwold's finest rejuvenant clinics in an attempt to regain what they saw as the pinnacle of human beauty. The Brazen Beasts The demon-kin hosts of the Brazen Beasts were instrumental in the destruction of Megaborealis's silo districts. After the refractor field that protected Silo 15 had been brought down, Abaddon's punitive bombardment slew the majority of the brazen beasts within a three-mile radius. Only those with demon taint in their blood rode out the firestorm. The chaos-touched renegades howling praise to the blood god as the ash of mortals billowed past them. Corn cares not from whence the blood flows, and he was pleased with the callous slaughter. 
The War Master subsequently sent a vast horde of bloodletters to reinforce the brazen beasts, who then went on to conquer a significant portion of Megaborealis. The Herald Skulltaker led them, along with a slew of demon engines in a hunt for the heads of the Hive Sprawl's tech priests. The Purge. The Purge, the devotees of Nurgle in his destroyer aspect, afflicted Dontoria Hivesprawl. They despised life in all its forms, and there the planet's overpopulation was by far the most pronounced. It was an obvious target for their morbid obsession with death and destruction, though in time the Purge intended to spread their conquests across the planet entire. In their relentless and efficient killing sprees, the Purge used every weapon and trick they could conceive of. Fast-spreading epidemics, airborne poisons, wholesale demolition, and even arson. Provided the populace was slaughtered, and along with them, every other creature, from their grok's breeding stock to the blood lice that infested their bunks, the Purge considered their duty fulfilled. For them, every form of life was hopelessly corrupt. Spreading across eastern Dontoria into the west, the Purge came into conflict with the Death Guard elements whose philosophy concerning Nurgle meant they embraced the great cycle of life, death and rebirth. Where one wanted to slay all life, the other wished to propagate it, albeit in its most repugnant form. A religious schism of sorts saw the two opposed forces all but neutralise one another, but the civil conflict was cold comfort to the vigilous Senate, by that point, Dontoria was already lost. The Red Corsairs The Red Corsairs, firm allies of Abaddon since he found common cause with their master, Huron Blackheart, were the scourge of the planet's shipping lanes and spaceports. Arguably the best steersmen in the entire Chaos Invasion Force, they swiftly moved to establish void superiority above all the major hive sprawls, stymieing the Imperial reinforcements that might otherwise have bolstered their kindred planetside. Wherever Imperial forces were sent by the Vigilus Senate to reclaim the spaceports that had fallen into the hands of the Red Corsairs, the Renegades would at first fight from on high, unleashing bombardments and making strafing runs, as their Helldrakes clawed rival craft out of the skies. Only when they were certain of victory did the Red Corsairs jump out of their dropcraft to join the fray and finish off the survivors. It is said the Red Corsairs fought with a fury and determination that made even the White Scars reconsider their assaults upon the spaceports. The Renegades' given duty was to ensure the planet was kept under lockdown and that no unauthorised ships could make passage in or out. Though they had not the numbers to cover every spaceport, as raiders beyond compare... They were well qualified to fulfil this task. Only a few spacecraft slipped the cordon of the Red Corsairs over the course of the War of Nightmares. Such was its efficacy. Critically, one craft to avoid their clutches was the vessel known as Vol's Ghost, the ship that carried the deadly payload of Death Strike missiles to Abaddon's flagship, the Vengeful Spirit, with destructive consequences. Were it not for this singular failing, the war for Vigilus would likely have been a total victory for the forces of chaos. The Scourged The Renegade chapter, known as the Scourged, have a particular connection with Vigilus, for they hail from the neighbouring death world of Falsehood, whose squalls of acid rain are as common as the dawn. They are renegades like no other, for they have the uncanny ability to hear lies whenever they are spoken, just as a good and faithful statement has the ring of truth about it, 
A lie can be perceived as hollow by one who knows the signs. On falsehood, it became common practice to guard against falsity, for the planet itself had been founded on a deception concerning its viability as a homeworld, and its people had grown to despise untruths ever since. It is a tragic irony of the type much beloved of the Dark Gods, that the Scourge now have no choice but to hear every foul utterance spoken by mankind. Once long ago, the Scourge were a chapter of noble space marines known as the Seekers of Truth. They did everything in their power to live up to that name, but all too often they were dispatched on crusades to kill the innocent alongside the guilty, and that rankled their sensibilities. No more so than with their chapter master, Gallus Herodicus, in a moment of weakness, Herodicus prayed at length to somehow be granted the power to discern the guiltless from the damned, to know the truth from deceit, and hear the lies of men for what they were. His wish was granted, but not by the Emperor. It pleased the architect of fate to give every member of the chapter a gift. From that day on, they heard all the lies spoken across the galaxy, a constant susurration of perfidy that robbed them of clear thought. Though they heard those spoken near them loudest of all, and hence were often able to pick out the true agendas of their enemies amongst the background noise of humanity's duplicity. They were plagued by so much mental pollution, they gradually lost their minds. By turning to Zench's worship in the hope it would lessen their burden, the scourged became a far deadlier threat to the innocent than they ever were before and a merciless bane to those who spin lies as a way of life. During the War of Nightmares, the Scourge descended upon Dirkton in a devastating aerial assault, dropping into carefully chosen beachheads around the safe houses of the criminal dynasties. They attacked the lairs and subterranean nodes of the gene-stealer cult in a synchronous assault for the lies and deceptions perpetrated by the cult to keep those strongholds safe made them glow with the energy of falsehood. Their attack did irreparable damage to the Xenos war effort, but in the end, the cultists proved too many, and the victory too was proved false. Forces of the Warp Over the course of the War of Beasts, the psychic maladies that plagued Vigilus rarely gave rise to demonic manifestations. That changed as the Chaos Invasion took hold, however, and the frequency of these occurrences increased dramatically over the course of the War of Nightmares. Upon Vigilus, the talons of the Dark Gods had gouged deep. Each Noctilive crown hammered into its crust increased the amount of empiric energy saturating the planet. To the witch-sighted astropaths of Neo-Vellum, these structures burned brighter than any blazing spire or urban firestorm. Once the Blackstone reserves of Megaborealis were shattered, it was as if a dam had broken and the trickle of demonic manifestations became a flood. Here was the true legacy of the Great Rift. Not just panic and terror, but also another dimension breaching real space in a catastrophic cascade of warp energy. Dontoria's slow descent into a plague-wracked hellscape had been engineered from below the city streets since the early stages of the War of Beasts. Death Guard, content to play the long game, had infected half the populace with a hideous cornucopia of diseases. Fiercest amongst them were Nurgle's Rot and the Gellapox, supernatural plagues that led to Nurglings and mutoid vermin infesting the alleyways and undersumps of the quarantine zones. The privation, drought and hunger inflicted upon the populace worsened by the Verulian anomaly 
turned once teeming hab zones into landscapes of fly-blown corpses. When two Noctilif crowns were raised in Dontoria, a massive influx of plague demons poured through the weakened fabric of real space to infect the hive sprawl. They were led by the entity known as Rotagus Rainfather, an endless deluge of filthy rainwater hammered out of the skies as that obese monstrosity lumbered across the streets, chortling as the arid ground greedily absorbed the flood until it became more marsh than desert. Millions of Dontoria's remaining citizens, half mad with thirst after having their water supplies dwindled to nothing, drank of the foul water, and in doing so, damned themselves. The Astra Militarum, the Munitorum, even the more human elements of the pauper princes partook of the gushing fluids that poured from the pregnant skies. Everyone that let that water pass their lips spent their last few days riddled with grey flux, sepsis and goiter plague. Some even found themselves expelling stomach-grown nurglings in a vomitous mockery of birth. By that time, the Death Guard and the Purge had begun their self-destructive war for control of the damned false continent. The bloated cadavers of Dontoria outnumbered the living ten times over. And plague demons of all kinds capered freely through the sprawl. The magma farms of Storval had played host to the phenomenon dubbed the Flickering Fires, beings that danced in the flames since the first phase of the War of Beasts, or so its workers claimed. At first, the overlords and tech priests, handlers, had put these fanciful tales down to the superstition of heat-addled minds, perhaps to avoid any inquisitorial scrutiny, so the rumours went unchecked. However, the sudden manifestation of lurid-coloured demons, which appeared at around the time of Silo 15's destruction, proved the workers right. The volcanoes of each geothermic farm began to overflow, but this was no natural eruption. A kaleidoscopic cascade of warp fire spilled flame-spewing demons down the flanks of each mountain. For a while, Skatari, Servitor and Slave fought bravely to hold them back, levelling firepower from the Voshian canals. Then the defenders found their lines attacked from behind by the pyroclastic cults that had long been gaining power in Storval. The mortal servants of the capering choir cried out in supplication to the feathered lords of change, soaring in the thermals high above. While the twisting helicus rode the lava flow into the Vorshan canal network, gibbering in foul tongues. As unharmed by the refined magma as sump swimmers in an underwater river, they headed out into the client continents that were fueled by Storvel's exported energy, there to cause untold havoc amongst the populace. The tech priests sanctioned protocols for geothermus extremists, using their frag drill networks to puncture Storvel's tectonic plates in such a way that the carefully marshaled volcanic currents were goaded into a full-scale eruption. This time it was magma that boiled from the couplers of each active volcano, not burning away the demons as much as burying them under billions of tons of glowing rock sludge. It was a devastating counter-strike, but one that crippled Vigilus's expertly managed supply of energy forever. In the hive sprawls furthest from Storvel, the auto-candles and lumens began to go out, and mankind's most ancient fear rose to the surface across a landscape lit only by the Great Rift. With the demise of Storval's industry, 
Vigilus was consigned to the darkest night of all. The demons that assailed Vigilus were attracted by the hot and stinking winds of war, and none more so than the demons of corn. Some were invited by ritual, others raised from rivers of spilt blood. On Mortworld, they were summoned by anger itself. Upon the southern outskirts of that once prosperous false continent, the downtrodden workers of the Hab Zones had endured countless generations of hardship in the name of their uncaring aristocratic masters. They worked without complaint amongst the cactus farms and forests of thorned succulents, Though their limbs ached and their skin was scarred head to toe by poison-fested barbmark, for they knew it was their duty to provide the vegetation so difficult to grow elsewhere on the arid planet to the people of the Hivesfrawls. When the aristocracy of Mertwold sequestered that hard-won bounty for themselves, the people of southern Mertwold felt a bone-deep anger that grew fiercer with every day they went hungry. Fiery rhetoric turned to looting, then to riots in the streets, Three days after the Great Tithe, the local Adeptus Arbites drafted into the fighting against the orcs plaguing the eastern trench lines, sent a comms tube to the Vigilus Senate, announcing that they had lost control. At the time, they had no idea how true that was. That region was shortly thereafter to become the site of a full-blown demonic manifestation. When the people of Mortwald hammered their fists bloody on the doors of the Equilaterial, bastion, stronghold of the Mertwold elite. Their rage was goaded to blinding fury by the words of their leaders. Amongst them was a group of dark disciples that secretly served a demagogue known as Vot Redtooth. Only when the riot turned to a stampede, which became a massacre, did Redtooth bring his dagger-shaped craft in from low orbit, making landfall south of the Dionys Trench Network with his Retinue of corn berserkers, he bade his pilot blast apart the great gates that led to the upper levels of the bastion. Dozens died as rubble tumbled down, but the rest of the citizens raced into the breach in their thousands, howling for blood. Pillaging their way through the citadel, throttling and thrashing and beating their former masters to death, the furious mob fell upon those that had taken from them for so long. In places, their oppressors were ripped bodily apart. As the streets ran red with blood, the veil between reality and the warp thinned to the point that it all but disappeared. In a burst of crimson light, the demonic servants of corn stampeded through the shimmering portal that manifested there, the imposing figure of the head-hunting demon skull-taker at the fore. They paid no mind to the station of those they killed during the ensuing slaughter, Scar-skinned agri-peasants lay dying upon the corpses of the most well-dressed men on Vigilus. The south of Mertwold had fallen to the demons of corn, just as its trench lines fell to the forces of the Iron Warriors, and its inner sanctums to the flawless host. Though not one of these chaos forces had coordinated with another, together they were able to destroy the most heavily defended area of Vigilus outside of Hyperia Hivesprawl. Megaborealis was also to feel the wrath of corn, for where the demon engines of the brazen beasts rampaged through the streets, they left a trail of carnage that could be seen in the warp as well as in real space. The Seberite, that vast semi-sentient spacecraft with which the renegades had made planetfall upon Vigilus, roared with bloodlust as it felt its demon engine children carve their way across the industrial landscape. From within, its roiling guts 
came horned bloodletter riders mounted on brazen juggernauts, thundering down the unfurled ramps of the demon barge just as mauler fiends and venom crawlers had done before. Beating great livery wings as they manifested fully in real space, eight of Korn's mighty bloodthirsters flew above them, swooping down to hack apart the clades of Onager dune crawlers that were stabbing the beams of their neutron lasers towards the great craft. When Fabricator Vosk of Megaborealis saw a new spheric relay of the greater demons hacking apart the Warhound Titan sent to reinforce the Adeptus Mechanicus forces, he immediately engaged consolidation protocols, abandoning the entire silo district and putting into place a procedure for his own evacuation. To him, it was a binary calculation devoid of emotion, but to those that knew the minds of the tech priests of Megaborealis, it was as close to a declaration of utter defeat as his brotherhood ever made. Wherever an act of dedication or exploration crosses over into dangerous intensity, the gaze of a Slaneshi demon is sure to be drawn. On Vigilus, where the population had been riddled with madness for decades, the demons of Slaanesh found their own kinds of paradise amongst the war-torn landscapes. The forces of Slaanesh were seen in a great many war zones across Vigilus, for each hive sprawl had its own version of excess. In Hyperia, this revolved around gilded splendour, the pride of corrupt leaders seeing them spend the planet's tithes on their own self-aggrandizement. In Merkwald, it was greed, for the aristocracy there had revelled in gluttony and feasting after sequestering the food of an entire continent. In Otic Hivesprawl, the populace tried desperately to save the water reserves that were being drained by the Verulian anomaly, leading to the hoarding of aqua receptacles and the raising of water magnates to the status of kings. In places, several aqua-besotted urban tribes died not of thirst, but of drinking too much tainted water for their bodies to process, and in doing so, opening the way for demonic manifestation. At first, where the veil grew thin, these manifestations would start with a shimmer in the air, bruised purple, Balsam peach, sickly pink, and all the colours of flesh swirling into one. Through that portal would step a handmaiden of Slanesh, then another, then an entire court of demonettes, singing, screaming, and keening in ecstasy as they cavorted amongst the stunned citizens that had summoned them, whether knowingly or not. Next would come a herald, tall and statuesque, a muse of dark desires whose presence hypnotised every soul who saw her with the possibilities of unbound excess. With a sharp clack of the claws, she would give the signal for the killing to begin, and the simmering threat of conflict would boil over into a tide of unbridled savagery. Those demons of excess that lived for the thrill of the chase found vigilance much to their liking. In the cities, they pursued their prey through the streets, upon sinuous arrow-swift steeds and elegantly sculpted chariots, slashing at the backs of those who fled their sport. In Hyperia, the vigilant guard sent beyond the ring of nothingness to stop the demons rampaging around the capital gunned down a few of the leading charioteers, but were nowhere near fast enough to neutralise the enforced entire. The vanguard of the demon cavalry leapt straight over the Astra Militarum front line, then darted unhindered through the barricades with the ease of bladefish slipping through a coral reef. Trilling with glee, they assassinated officers and commissars alike. 
when the main body of the cavalcade hit home, its sickle-wheeled chariots ploughed through the ordered ranks of the Astra Militarum, like auto-threshers, through a field of scrub grass. Blood flew in high arcs, glittering in the light of the Great Rift, a darkly beautiful sight that brought the greater demon Liwikwaska to the fray. It is a matter of record that the Keeper of Secrets' rampage covered a full half of the Van Golic Macro Highway before the statuesque demon was finally brought down by the concerted efforts of Temperance Blaze and her fellow canonesses. In the wastelands beyond the hive sprawls, the artful chase enjoyed by the demons turned into a savage running battle as the mounted warbands of Slanesh clashed with the speed freaks that had claimed the wilderness for their own. The orcs were at first bewildered by this new foe and goggled in amazement at the slender beasts that were able to keep pace with their hot rods and upgunned wagons. Then the faces of the demons split with wicked smiles and they darted in to slash and stab at the drivers of their vehicles, which then careened away to crash and burn in the desolate dunes. Word spread of these demon huntresses as fast as the orcs could get their vehicles from one camp to another, and the next time the Slaneshi riders attacked, they were greeted with a storm of solid shot. A new race began in the wilderness, for an excess of raw speed nourishes the demons of the Dark Prince as much as any other kind, and orcs are not ones to turn away from a challenge. Though no formal imperial records exist of these clashes, rumours and tales of pale cavaliers battling rugged green-skinned vehicles circulated throughout the War of Nightmares. In the frosted wilderness of Calax Bane, the ascendant Drukari were to meet a disturbing foe indeed, an avatar of their most feared nemesis, the creature that had once assailed the laurels of victory during the war for Vigilus. The Dark Eldar clashed many times with the rubrique of the Thousand Sons, both Eldari and Heretic Astartes seeking to use the webway portal concealed on that continent as their base of operations. The Drukari had the greater claim, for they had used the webway long before the Imperium had ventured forth into the stars. They saw the Thousand Sons as parasites that needed to be slain. But in the rubrique and their sorcerous masters, they found an intractable foe that was all but immune to their poisons and agony-inducing weapons. The Drukari were finally able to defeat the rubrique by using an ancient terraforming engine they discovered, which lowered the temperature of Calyx Bane so severely that its blizzards and snowdrifts froze the slow-moving automatons in place. But the sorcerers, many of whom rode the skies on demonic discs that whispered secrets in strange, guttural voices, remained active. Shorn of their foot soldiers, they withdrew from the war zone entirely, but not before enacting a summoning ritual as a parting gift to their Aldari rivals. That dark spell brought forth not a greater demon of Zench, but one of Slanesh, and an extremely powerful one at that. The pale stalker of Calyx Bane was a huntress of inhuman skill and patience, some thirty feet in height. She was strong enough to pierce a darting raider skiff with her spear and dash it to pieces upon the icy rock, and she could remain unseen at will, her milk-white skin blending perfectly with the blizzards. She hunted down the Dracare, skimming across the ice continent as an eagle hunts crows, devouring the bodies of the slain by distending her jaws so she could swallow them whole. The many-limbed demon queen took to wearing the clawed limbs of many ice mantis beasts foolish enough to attack her, lending her an even stranger and more formidable silhouette. 
Within three weeks of the Pale Stalker's manifestation, the Drakaria had lost a full third of their number. The remainder were so petrified at the threat of this nigh-invisible stalker, they made one last foray into the hive sprawls, captured as many victims as they could, and withdrew from Vigilus entirely. The Forces of the Imperium The Imperium's military machine had been battered and broken down in the first phase of the War of Beasts, only to be shored up and brought back to thunderous, belligerent life by the arrival of the Adeptus Astartes. Over the War of Nightmares, they too were to find themselves sorely pressed. The War of Beasts had seen Vigilus drained of much of its strength. The uprising of the pauper princes, prematurely triggered by the Orc invasion, had a particularly devastating effect on the planet's supply lines and infrastructure, for it bypassed every layer of defence by striking from within. With the wastelands controlled by the Orcs and so many hidden victories already won by the time the Genesteel occultists engaged the Imperium, the armed forces that sought to hurl the Xenos back, be they Astra Militarum, Adeptus Sororitas or Adeptus Astartes, found they were on unstable ground. The coming of the Chaos Threat looked to be the grievous blow that would take the planet to its death, for Abaddon's free-stage invasion threatened to tip the destabilised planet into utter disaster. Some of Vigilus's Stratagos posited the theory that the Xenos invasion had been sent by the Warmaster to deliberately exhaust the resources of the Imperium's war machine. To a man, these unfortunates were hung by the neck until dead, for they had committed the crime of doomsaying in the face of catastrophe. Such hated foes as the Greenskins and the Xeno-Cultists were terrifying enough, without word spreading, that they ultimately served the unspeakable powers of the heretic Astartes. Yet, perhaps there was a kernel of truth to these claims. The opening of the Great Rift was a crux point in history. Even the most blinkered fool could not deny that. It was from that warp storm's depths that the Orcoid invasion had emerged to threaten Vigilus. Those amongst the Emperor's Holy Inquisition that made a study of the Warmaster had noted that many of the systems targeted by his Black Crusades had since been swallowed by the Cisastrix Maledictum, including the Cadian Gate itself. Surely it was no coincidence that he now sought to conquer a sentinel world guarding the Nechmund Gauntlet. Whatever the truth of the matter... The coming of the Chaos Invasion saw the situation on Vigilus grow ever more dire for the Imperial forces stationed there. Every new day, the Vigilus Senate rang with raised voices and bellowed oaths, as its delegates were forced to make ever more desperate decisions. Their forces were stretched thin, and though they gave everything they had to save the planet, the War of Nightmares fast became an exercise in callous expediency. Nonetheless, the Imperium, as stubborn and dogged as ever, refused to yield. Urban conflicts raged across every sector of every hive sprawl, the new war against the heretic often blending into the ongoing conflict with the Xenos. The vast majority of the Space Marine chapters present on Vigilus were assigned to the wider battle group known as the Hyperion Guardians, for Hyperia was the principal site of governance and strategy, and it could not fall. From there, the Imperium's elite forces met the Chaos Assault head-on, pouring ever more resources and manpower into the meat grinder of the wider war. The continent that fell furthest to these manifold threats was the sprawling urban eyesore of Dirkton. This region had been a hive of crime and corruption ever since the disastrous breakdown of relationships between its ruling dynasties and the Aquilarian Council over the Hyperia Dirkton Ford War. The false continent was then infiltrated by the pauper princes from Megaborealis in the north, and there the Xenos had thrived. 
the Astro Militarum of the Dirkden Reclamation Group and their Crimson Fist allies evacuated vast swathes of its populace to Hyperia, but they could not save them all, especially when it became clear that many of their own regiments had recruited gene-tainted Xeno-cultists into their number. During the War of Nightmares, the battle between the Night Lords, the Scourged and the Pauper Princes saw much of the continent's central mass consumed in flames, vindicating Kalgar's decision to evacuate. Only the Dirkden rearguard was left behind to cover the Imperial withdrawal, for that hive sprawl was surely lost. Dontoria was the next to be struck from the Vigilus Senate list of viable war zones. Over the course of the War of Nightmares, the plague introduced there by the Death Guard reached epidemic proportions, and the formal quarantine was extended from the area around Litmus Dock to encompass the entire hive sprawl. As the populace grew ever more desperate, the Dontorian Quarantine Corps, a combination of Space Marine and Astra Militarum elements, stopped fighting with the intention of saving the citizenry, and instead imposed martial law to ensure they could not escape. It was a devastating blow to the people of Vigilus. A great many of the Vigilant Guard hailed from the Big Fug, as Dontoria was colloquially known, and the quarantine effectively doomed their people to death by a panoply of supernatural diseases or the merciless scouring of the purge. All shipping routes around the hive sprawl were closed down, and all convoys leaving the hive sprawl were hunted and neutralised. If not by the Imperial Navy fighter pilots seeking to maintain the integrity of the quarantine zone, than by the orc speed freaks of the wastelands. The Ultramarines, including Kalgar himself, had fought against the scions of the plague god before, and although these actions seemed extreme, they knew there could be no other choice. Mertwald fell soon after Dontoria, assailed from within as well as without by the Chaos Menace. The Cadian shock troops and Vantrillian nobles, stationed at their Dionos trench network and their Zella line, fought with honour and comportment, earning accolades from the Imperial Fists, Mortifactors and Fire Lords they fought alongside. The sparse but powerful forces of the Catachan jungle fighters, very much at home in the hydroponic jungles and fields of poisonous cacti, fought the orc commandos that penetrated the trench networks with standstill, and the vigilant creedsmen burned the spore of the Xenos from the rejuvenant districts with commendable thoroughness. For a while, Murdwall held, Yet as the upper echelons retreated into seclusion and the abandoned citizens turned to the most diabolical of patrons in order to seek revenge for their mistreatment, the scourge of chaos began to take hold. The four-pronged assaults, the flawless host on the citadels and palaces, the Black Legion upon sites of strategic import, the demons of corn fighting alongside revolutionaries in the streets, and the Iron Warriors' siege masters punching through the eastern trench lines, proved too much for even the Imperial Fists to counter. Captain Fane himself sent the missive to Manius Kalga that the false continent was lost. During the War of Nightmares, the skies high above Ortec were crisscrossed by the contrails of warring aircraft as the combined defense group fought hard to retake control of the Hive Sprawl's vital reservoirs. On the ground, the Adepta Sororitas continued to hunt the Xeno-cultists of the Genestealer cult. Though the focus of the wider war had shifted upon the War Master's arrival, and though the Sisters of Battle stationed on Vigilus fought on every front against a staggering variety of foes, the majority of their orders still battled to defend their home territories against the alien threat. Towards the end of the war, Otter Hive Sprawl had become all but unrecognisable, 
The triggering of explosives beneath Gregan Hollow had exposed a honeycomb of tunnels and passageways that the pauper princes knew well, for their miners and excavation teams had created them. The Adeptus Sororitas ventured into that underground warren and fought to contain the worst sights with the orders of the last prioress and the Argent Shroud working in concert to extend incineration protocols across any zone they deemed irrecoverably lost. The deeper they ventured inside Otak's maze-like undercity, however, the more the scale of their task became clear. The tunnels extended not just beneath Otak, but out into the wastelands towards Dirkden and Hyperia. When the lumen-lit underworks of the city gave way to innumerable crude shafts dug from the bare rock of the planet's understrata, the Sisters of Battle uncovered the true extent of the Xenos infestation. They were faced with tens of thousands of miles of labyrinthine tunnels that led from one false continent to another, and as they investigated them with torch and bolter, they found many of them were infested with monstrous aberrations. To purge them clean would take years. With the chaos scourge raining hell down on the cityscape above, that was time they did not have. The matter was brought to Temperance Blaze of the Order of Our Martyred Lady. At first she flew into a rage, but then as dawn broke, she conceded that Otak was irredeemable and recommended the mustering of all Adepta Sororitas forces for a last stand at Hyperia. The wastes between the hive sprawls belonged almost wholly to the orcs, for the warlords and big mechs of the Speedwire valued the vast tracts of land between the hive sprawls precisely because they were so desolate. Though they had little in the way of resources except those that they had recycled from their own invasion craft, the orcs defended their chosen territories with every bullet they could muster. They fought like enraged bulls in defence of the scrap cities that still blighted the horizon. Despite this threat, the Adeptus Sororitas braved these wildernesses to ensure their convoys and mercy missions crossed them safely. The Order of the Ebon Chalice rose to make an invaluable contribution to the war effort when they painstakingly assembled a map of locations where the orcs typically gathered and the routes their speedwire races took around the planet. Once this was distributed via the Order's Dialogus, it proved an indispensable aid for those escorting water convoys and refugee columns from the lost hive sprawls to the nearest zone still in Imperial hands. However, when word spread amongst the Greenskins that to approach a column guarded by the Adeptus Sororitas was to initiate a fierce and lethal battle, the belligerent Xenos went out of their way to hunt the wastes for Imperial convoys that were under the protection of the Sisters of Battle. The Orcs were not the only threat faced by the Adeptus Sororitas in their missions of mercy, but over the course of the War of Nightmares, the wastes were raided by Drakari war parties, Xeno-cultist outriders, giant Terrestine mole rats and wild grox herds. After the word bearers of Abaddon's invasion force had planted the dread structures known as Noctilith crowns across the planet's surface, these wastes were also haunted by living tempests of empiric energy, supernatural phenomena known to the Adeptus Roritas as warpgeists, and even demon manifestations. Not one part of Vigilus could be called safe. During the War of Nightmares, Calix Bane was forsaken entirely by the Imperial war effort, its armed forces withdrawn to support the vital stronghold of Hyperia while it still stood. The Void Tridents and Castellans of the Rift had fought hard against the Speed Freaks, operating out of Mechstop City, 
working in concert to ensure their glacier quarrymen and their Skatari overseers could escape from the Drakari menace of the ice continent and reach safety. Thanks to the valour of these Primaris chapters, many of the ice-carrying convoys made it to the nearest points of Ottok, Mertwold and Hyperia, continents in as much need of water as they were of manpower. The pure ice water they carried with them was soon distributed amongst the populace, but not in the manner they had anticipated. Upon reaching civilization, many of the convoys came under attack from well-organized bands of cutthroat xeno-cultists and strike forces sent out by the crime lords of Ottok and Mertwold underworlds. They were opposed by the local Astra Militarum of the Vigilant Guard, the Vigilant Creedsmen, and the Oteca Pikeman River Guard. But with hostile elements appearing all around them, the Imperial forces were soon overwhelmed. So it was that the Aqua Glacius, the Primaris chapters had given so much to protect, ended up wetting the throats of criminals, madmen, and Xenos hybrids, instead of the citizens and soldiers for which it had been intended. The Imperium had yielded one fiercely contested war zone after another as the War of Nightmares ground on, but in doing so, it had managed to consolidate its resources at Hyperia. While that once glorious hive sprawl was still under Imperial control, there was something to fight for, and that war zone was reinforced time and time again at the behest of the Ministorum and the Vigilus Senate alike. Saints Haven had withstood the punitive Aldari attacks and orc assaults throughout the phases of both wars. Its defences included forces from the Ultramarines and 11 other Adeptus Astartes chapters, including the Black Templars, the Howling Griffins, the Silver Skulls and the Space Wolves of Krom Dragongaze. The Hive Sprawl was the keep at the heart of the Vigilus Fortress. Though the ramparts had tumbled, its inner sanctum did not fall. Towards the end of the War of Nightmares, the planet's defenders mustered there to make their last stand. When the legendary Gloriana-class battleship, the Vengeful Spirit, made its emergency warp translation, it did so with haste rather than safety as its priority. In doing so, it escaped the vortex that was gnawing at its flanks, the violent maelstrom, that had been created by the detonation of the Death Strike missiles delivered by Vol's ghost. Amid the storm of energy with which the vast spacecraft slipped from real space into the hell dimension of the warp, the vortex was diffused. The spirit would live on to blight the Imperium with the War Master still at its helm. Unfortunately for the Chaos Fleet, gathered around the vast spaceship, the warp breach brought about the emergency translation Aggravated by the detonation of the Vortex warheads, spilled out a tremendous amount of raw empiric energy. It consumed several dozen Heretic Astartes warships in quick succession before blending into the Great Rift. For after the destruction of Silo 15 and the raising of the Noctilith crowns, that vast warp storm had encroached upon Vigilus to the point that it threatened every fleet. Enforcing his adversary to turn tail, Kalgar not only robbed the Chaos Fleet of its most prized asset, but had torn out its heart. He had turned the same energies that had blighted Vigilus against those who sought to amplify them, and sent almost a third of the Chaos Fleet screaming into the hellscape of the warp. No small number of Imperial craft were caught in the sucking riptide of that emergency translation, amongst a dozen lesser craft and inbound torpedoes, the Duke Aralof and the Haraja Monarch, were both snatched away, never to be heard of again. The Vigilus Senate considered the sacrifice more than worthwhile. As the warp breach faded into the greater mass of the Cicitrix Maledictum, the Imperial Navy redoubled its assault, 
and, over time, found itself reinforced by ships sent by Calgar out on reconnaissance missions during his initial approach to Vigilus. The battle swung from a last-ditch defence to a long-ranged stalemate, and then, as more Imperial craft joined the fray, a gradual climb towards victory. By this point, word was reaching the Chaos troops upon Vigilus that their armada was stricken. The Lord Macrag made sure of it. Rigged up to a vox array in the foremost apothecarium of Saint's Haven, Calgar spoke loudly and with great conviction of the inevitable victory of the Imperial troops. The broadcast was relayed through the Ministorum's own loud hailer systems, which were spread far and wide to carry Pontifex Gallux sermons to the faithful in every hive sprawl. All those who doubted Calgar's assertions had but to look up at the night sky, where a swirling blue-green vortex was surrounded by the pinpricks of light that had once been the Chaos Fleet. The war upon the brink. The destruction of the planet Vigilus was all but complete, yet still the Imperium would not yield. Though anarchy reigned in every hive sprawl, even Hyperia, Saint's Haven still stood, and with the breaking of the Chaos Armada, a slow trickle of reinforcements began to reach the planet. It was not over yet. Calgar's widely broadcast speeches reached millions of the citizens that had panicked, gone to ground or turned from the light of the Emperor over the course of the War of Nightmares. They were being addressed directly by Marnius Calgar, the son of the Primarch himself, a figure who had become so legendary over the course of the war that even the Shanty tribes had heard tell of his name. This great warrior was exhorting them to fight back, to keep strong in their faith and to ensure that, though Vigilus was sorely wounded, it would not pass into the darkness forever. At first the message was ignored, for the people of Vigilus had been so traumatised, had seen so much killing, that mere words could not light the flame of defiance in their chests. But here and there, new troops began to join the fight. These were Imperial forces that had been withdrawn from war zones the Vigilus Senate had conceded as lost. From Calix Bane came the Void Tridents and the Castellans of the Rift. From Mertwald came the battle-scarred remnants of Captain Fane's command, and from Ottok came not only a massive influx of Sisters of Battle, but Haldor Icepelt and the heroic brand Saberwolf, last of his strike force to survive the Xenos insurrection of that troubled sprawl. Cadian shock troops and Vantrillian nobles rubbed shoulders with Minostorum preacher militia, Mortifactors joined forces with Ogryn Auxilia, and Ultramarines fought alongside native Vigilant Guardsmen. When the last of the Ministorum ships sent to reinforce Vigilus emerged from the Nakmund Gauntlet and made planetfall, the tiny seed of hope sown by these reinforcements began to bear fruit, with the Verulian anomaly banished as a result of the Dark Angel's strike at the Citadel Vigilant, and with the Chaos Fleet in disarray, it was possible to send spacecraft to Vigilus's orbit once more, and from there to make landing at Hyperia. More and more Ecclesiarchy ships arrived, summoned by the fervent pleas of Slyne Gallic and the terse demands of Temperance Blaze, and each disgorged another battalion of Sisters of Battle. Block by city block, hab by filthy hab, the Adeptus Sororitas began to purge the taint of chaos and the lingering stench of the Xenos invader from the hive sprawl of Hyperia. Calgar adapted his speeches to incorporate the latest intel each day, weaving inspirational tales designed to resonate with the mentality of a populace that was slowly beginning to believe Vigilus could be saved. 
Every new dawn, more citizens came out of hiding to sign up to fight alongside the Sisters of Battle. They came first in dribs and drabs, then in mobs, then in crowds, until the Frataris militia numbered almost as many as the Adeptus Sororitas themselves. A scattering of warships made it across the Nakmund gauntlet, for though the Great Channel had narrowed and was more dangerous to cross than ever, it had not disappeared entirely. The ships brought a few hundred reinforcements each, a paltry number in the grand scheme of things, and though the propaganda broadcast made much of their arrival, they contributed little but a boost to morale. For a time it seemed that only Hyperia could truly be saved. Yet as more Imperial ships began to reach the capital, the troops under Kalgar started to push outwards rather than simply to shore up defences. The long road to recovery had begun, but whether that was a fool's errand or a realistic goal, none could say. The warships of the Ecclesiarchy were not the only ones to make planet fall after the breaking of the Chaos Fleet. In the first stage of the War of Beasts, Lucine Agamemnos had sent an astrotelepathic petition to Terra, requesting a specific kind of aid. The message travelling via Neo Vellum and through the Nakmund gauntlet. The missive had been received by the Adeptus Astrotelepathica, and after he had been put through a decade of systematic procedures, and been lost entirely for a while, by chance it found its way to the High Lords of Terror. The Governor's request was granted, though she was long dead by the time the results manifested. The decision of the High Lords resulted in a small, raptor-like craft being diverted on its return journey from the Cadian Gate towards Vigilus. Within its cockpit was a trio of Imperial assassins, and within the stasis chamber of its hold, three more. It is a testament to the strategic value of Vigilus that such a high number of operatives had been spared by the Officio Assassinorum. The three within the stasis chamber of the hold were from the Eversor Temple. They were deployed via drop pod to the heartlands of the Orc Western Scrap City Cluster, Within a single week of making Planetfall, their combined kill tally included six Orc Warlords, fifteen Big Mechs, and the destruction of the Great Gargant Gorkzilla. While the Eversaurs had been sent to strike at the Greenskins, their fellows had been deployed against the Genesteel Occultists. No less than 22 of the Pauper Prince's war leaders were taken down by the trio of Calidus Assassins, known as the Daughters of Marlindi. These infiltrators had disguised themselves as latter-generation gene-stealer hybrids to get as close as possible to the heart of the cult. The crowning glory of their covert mission saw the patriarch, Grandsire Worm, slain by Phase Blade, though none of the assassins escaped alive. They did not realise that there was more than one patriarch upon Vigilus, for the planet was populous enough to support several independent gene sects and that the latter incarnation of Grand Sire Worm would rise amongst the planet's xeno-cultists as a saviour reborn. The assassins completely ignored the chaos presence upon Vigilus, for the request from the governor had been sent before the War of Nightmares had begun, and hence the heretics lay outside of their mission parameters. But their lethal ministrations destabilised, if not halted, the invasions of the xenos species that had battered the imperial defences for so long, in doing so, they brought the Imperial forces a reprieve in which they could focus on hurling back the renegades and traitors that still stalked the streets. It was another step on the path to victory, and Kalgar was glad of it. Vigilus could not be forsaken, could not be subject to exterminators as Imperial doctrine would have it, as Kalgar had maintained over and over again. 
This was a planet the Imperium could not afford to lose. A few still clung to the hope that the crippled world of Vigilus could one day be counted as a functional node in the Imperium once more, but it was not clear whether the Lord Macrag was truly amongst them. Many of the Senate saw a darker fate unfolding, though they dared not speak of it openly. Ominous possibilities hung in the air, unvoiced, but powerful nonetheless. The war for the Sentinel planet could well become a hungering void into which the forces of mankind would pour more and more resources without ever truly defeating the enemies they had faced there. And so concludes the war for Vigilus. Thank you, everybody, for watching. For those of you who watched the first part, I know this one was slightly delayed. I got a bit distracted doing Space Marine stuff. If you're not subscribed, please do remember to subscribe to keep up with other stuff I do. Much more stuff is coming up soon. Please like the video. Please, please like the video. And let me know what you think below. If you'd like to support the channel, there's also links below for various means you can if you're, if you're that way inclined. But please, just give me the like, lads. Come on, I really need it. I'll be back with more stuff very, very soon. And, uh, yeah, again, thank you to everybody supporting the channel. Your names are scrolling by here. Really means a lot, lads. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I'll be back again with more stuff very, very soon. May the Emperor protect.